know, and this species of veriformin's been extinct since the Cretaceous period. I mean, this thing is a of this thing. Why? Uh -huh. <laughs> you did. You crazy son of a bitch. You did. Look at this terrible little book on it. Cold-bloodedness, it doesn't apply. They're totally wrong. This is a warm-blooded creature. <laughs> this thing doesn't live in a swamp. This thing's got, what, a 25, 27-foot neck? A brachiosaurus 30. Welcome to episode 21 of the Film 89 podcast. I'm Sky and I'm the editor of Film89.co.uk and with me today I'm joined by my fellow Film 89 partners in crime. To my left it's my good buddy Richie Roberts. Rich, welcome back mate. Thank you very much. It's been, uh, it's been a couple of months I think. Yeah, I think the last time you were on was episode 14, Ant-Man and the Wasp. It makes a change for me not to be here talking about Marvel. Yeah, I know. Let's try not to mention Marvel today. Not that we don't love talking about it, but yeah, I think people are going to be getting sick here and just talking about comic book movies. And our other co-host, he's not here with us. He is, well, I don't even know how many thousands of miles away in Melbourne, Australia. And he's also, I believe, 11 hours in the future. It's Hayden Spurrell. Hayden, welcome back, mate. Thanks, mate. It's been a little while. Seems like the trend is I am joining joining the uh, podcast for episodes based on series after our Dark Knight trilogy sort of retrospective last time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We've um, yeah, we haven't done many sort of episodes on entire series, but um, yeah, this this one we're going to be talking about. It's not going to be any surprise to anyone who uh, you know hasn't already read the the, the description. We're gonna, we are going to be celebrating twenty five years of Steven Spielberg's adaptation of Michael Crichton's novel Jurassic Park and the subsequent sequels. We're also going to be doing a favorite three this episode, and it's going to be, or in fact, favorite. Well, it was going to be favorite five. <laughs> But then because of the subject matter, <laughs> none of us could round it down any shorter than a list of 10. So we're going to be doing our 10 favourite film scores. Plus, we've also got input from other members of the Film 89 crew, from our friends on Twitter and Facebook, and from our listeners. So, yeah, it's going to be a bit of a packed episode. How fast are they? Well, we clocked the T-Rex at 32 miles an hour. T-Rex? Mm-hmm. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Wow. Put your, put your head between your knees. <laughs> Dr. Grant. My dear Dr. Sattler. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Moving in herds. 
They do move in herds. How'd you do this? I'll show you. But starting off, guys, 1993, Steven Spielberg, he released two films that year, the other being the amazing Schindler's List. But the film he released before that was, I think it was released in the US on June 11th, 1993, and that is Jurassic Park. Hayden, I'll start with you. I don't even think you were born when Jurassic Park was released. Is that right? I think it came out about five months before I was born, roughly. So yeah, (laughs) my older brothers, I believe, sort of grew up on it, saw it in the cinema and caught it on TV a lot. And then I'd say that's probably where I sort of had my first introduction to it was on television when I was really young and I can't remember it at all. And then I think I sort of mentioned when we did our Dark Knight um, retrospective, I did mention that I sort of came to my love of film a little bit later on, so sort of in my late teens. And I'd say that's probably where... I really fell in love with Jurassic Park, and I feel like every time I watch it again, I just fall more and more in love with it each time. So, you know, just like uh, with myself and Rich and Neil and Steve and, and, and Jim Cottle, you know, the rest of the, of the crew, I think, I think it's safe to say then, Hayden, that Jurassic Park is to you kind of like what Star Wars is to us. It's a film that was either released just before or just after we were born, and it's like something we've always grown up with. You know, something of like a, of a cultural phenomenon. Is Jurassic Park, you know, that sort of same thing for you? I feel like it might be slightly before that time for me. So I'd say it's probably the series that I have memories of growing up with would be, say, The Lord of the Rings and even Harry Potter uh, slightly later. So I feel like maybe Jurassic Park was slightly before my time. And I never did catch the sequels until a lot later, to be honest. And you guys know that I only caught Jurassic Park 3 a few nights back. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) That's fine. And yeah, like it's just a film everyone needs to see. I think whether or not you grew up with it, it, it doesn't matter because it's a timeless classic. You're going to love it whether you come to it for the first time in 2018 or whether you came to it for the first time in 1993. Yeah, oh yeah, I agree. I'll come to what, you know, how, how I you know came to the film in a, in a minute. But Richie, um, what was your first experience with Jurassic Park? I was 12 years old. I was trying to think the first trailer that, that I would have seen, I, I know that there was a big build-up with it coming. You know, it was cutting-edge CGI effects. I remember being so desperate to see the film, and I grew up in a very small town in West Wales where there was one screen, one cinema, and I can remember opening night. Uh, I think the cinema started at half past is that, seven. Is that a town where dinosaurs still exist? Have, have they died out there yet? There's, there's, there's one or two left. <laughs> But um, as I say, uh, myself and a friend of mine, we, uh, one of our mums dropped us up to the cinema. We were the second in the queue. I was desperate to be the first in the queue. And I'll never forget there was a person sat on the wall in front of us and he was reading the book. Mm. Something which is ingrained in my mind. Someone sat there reading the novel of Jurassic Park. As I say, opening night about seven o'clock. And I think we got there about half past six, something like that. Just absolutely desperate to see it. It was, it was something that I feel like I was the age where I was the target audience for that film, or certainly a target audience. Dinosaurs go in and out of fashion, I think, with children. We'd never seen anything like it. The the, the quality of the effects, the, everything we'd seen in the trailers, you know, we, we were going there to see real dinosaurs. Dinosaurs were alive, and, and you bought everything about that film. The way that they sold the the technology, the the, the DNA technology into, into creating it. I remember coming out thinking, well, it's only a matter of time before mm-hmm. dinosaurs are walking the earth, because clearly that's the scientific method has been shown in that film. It was... It blew me away, and it's never stopped. It, it every time I watch it, as you say, you see something new in it every time. But it, it's one of those films that simply has not diminished over that twenty-five years. 
So imagine there, Richard, the guy that was in front of you that was reading Michael Crichton's novel. Have you read his book? I haven't read his book, no. Hayden, have you read the original book? I haven't, no. Now, I, again, I think I was probably about 15 in 1993 in the the run-up to the release of Jurassic Park. And and much like, you know, I think it was something that, I'm not saying it was started, but certainly for me that one of the earlier sort of big hype build-ups to a summer blockbuster was Tim Burton's Batman in 1989, where, Mm. you know, it was just everywhere. It was, you know, um, trading cards. It was on lunchboxes, T-shirts, much like we see in Jurassic Park in yeah. the in the scene where we see all of the merchandise in Jurassic Park, which they're going to be selling alongside tickets to the park. Which you know, I thought was a really clever thing, and it is also commenting on the sort of you know the merchandising thing, which I think was pretty much started by George Lucas with you know the the, the oh, Ken of Star Wars yeah. figures um, from seventy seven onwards. And yeah, it you know in in that lead up to. You know, the theatrical release of Jurassic Park, it was just huge. It was everywhere. You know, they, they would only show you, like, sort of brief snippets of the dinosaurs. Like, you'd see, like, a brief shot of, of the Brachiosaur. You wouldn't see, you know, the entire, no. you know, full version of it until... You know, it, it was just a very well-put-together trailer. My excitement for the film was just absolutely through the roof. Um, I did that summer read Crichton's original book. Now, whether or not I read it before or after I saw the film, I'm not sure. It may well have been afterwards because I, you know, after seeing the film, I was just completely just, you know, I wanted to absorb as much as you know, I could about it. And obviously the first port to call it would be the book. Now, you know, I found the book to be, it was a great book. I think there was a lot of science in it. You know, I do remember there were these little sort of inserts of pages with just little sort of breakers in the text with DNA code, you know, other, you know for no other reason other than to sort of pad the book out. Um, yeah, it was very heavy on the science, but, you know, it, it was a great read. And, you know, I think, I, you know, eventually then we'll, we'll come to the sequel. I, you know, I did read the second book as well. I can't remember too much about that. But, yeah, it was just one of those amazing tentpole summer blockbuster films. Films like Batman, for me, they don't hold up anymore. You know, I, I watch them now and I just find that a lot of the humour is just too quirky. And, and, you know, I'm not a big fan of Tim Burton. And it's a film that just has not aged well for me. Jurassic Park, on the other hand, hand on heart, it is as good now as it was back in 1993. Uh, you know, I think it's we're, we're going to come to everything that comes together to make the film great. Hayden, why do you think Jurassic Park? Or first off, do you think you know it, it's an enduring classic and, and, and has held up? And, and if so, why do you think that is? And I think there's only one answer to that question. And I think one of the earlier podcasts, we did a, um, a top five Spielberg ranking at the end. But I ranked Jurassic Park as, I believe, number one on my list of Spielberg, Spielberg movies, which differed to you guys. And I think I still stand by that. I think that maybe because of the time it came out, it was a little later. And obviously, I would have had more of a connection to it as a kid growing up. I think that it, it, it just stands out as a film that has so much going for it. it it's a summer blockbuster, but it has so much heart its characters are so so endearing it's 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 pacing is is just spot on and it, it takes its time despite the fact that as you said the other night it's also incredibly efficient and by taking it t- taking its time what i mean is that it doesn't rush into the the horror aspects of the film and there is plenty of it later on it feels like i think that it's arguably the last there's a, there's an era of steven spielberg films which were sort of tentpole summer blockbusters, game-changing films. And whilst he's done, Steven Spielberg has released some great films since, I struggle to think of a film of that style, of that family appeal, that ever reaches that point with Jurassic Park, is Mm. arguably of that style of Steven Spielberg film, which Steven Spielberg arguably is a genre in himself. 
It's the last. Yeah. It's the last. It's, it's the last one that he's done. The whole family can enjoy. It, it's groundbreaking. There's so much about it that he seems to have tried since, but not quite hit those marks. I think that that was the last of the great Spielberg family classics. Yeah, now we talked on, I don't know if it was the Spielberg episode, but I think the question was whether or not Spielberg is an auteur director, like a director that has got his own inimitable style, like like Alfred Hitchcock. You know, you can watch a Hitchcock film, you know certain little tropes which are going to pop up. And, you know, it's the same thing with directors like Brian De Palma. I would say, and, and certainly Quentin Tarantino is probably the best modern day example of that, but I would certainly say that, you know, there, there are probably a few different styles of Spielberg's film within his body of work. But I definitely think Jurassic Park falls within that sort of classic, wide-eyed wonderment Spielberg film, of which you've got films like Jaws, Close Encounters, E.T., you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and, and, and you know, quite a few others. And I think when we did that, you know, our top five Spielberg films, I actually put Jurassic Park as number five. You know, like we always say, these lists are... They're definitely not set in stone, as we'll come to now later on when we're talking our favourite film scores. Again, you know, having looked back at, at the film, watched it, you know, just yesterday, um, I definitely think, for me personally, now Jurassic Park would would definitely move up that list, and it would knock films out of the way which I'd put higher than it, like Saving Private Ryan for sure. You know, it's just a remarkable film. Is it? Is it just me, or I feel like Jurassic Park almost gets short shrift? Yeah, from the from the general consensus, it it is maybe it's sullied slightly by what comes later with the sequels. Maybe there's an over you know, there's an overview of of the series as a whole. But when you look at Jurassic Park on its own in isolation, not only what it did at the time, but as as, you, as we're talking about how it's sustained over the years, it's absolutely brilliant. And I do feel that when you're looking at lists of the greatest films of whatever period or, or what have you, it, it, Jurassic Park, there, there's perhaps there's a bit of a snobbish view of it. Oh, it's a film about dinosaurs. It's, it's CGI overload and what have you, which it isn't. But there's, I think there's an assumption and there's a, there's an automatic sort of view where it's looked down upon and it really shouldn't be because it, it, it deserves more. Maybe it does get the respect that I perhaps I'm just not reading the right places, but I feel like it, it definitely gets a bit of short shrift. I think you're right, Rich. I think the same thing happened to Jaws until maybe maybe about 15 or so years ago where people started to sort of reevaluate Jaws and sort of, you know, separate it from the sequels of which obviously there's a, you know, a progressive dip in quality to the point where, you know, you've got Jaws the Revenge, which is just an outright turd of a film. And yeah, you know, the the Jurassic Park franchise, I think you mentioned, um, you know, when we were having a, a private chat about it last night, Hayden, that... You know, the Jurassic Park franchise is far and away from being a great franchise, or, you know, a, you know, one with consistent quality, as we'll come to later. But, you know, just looking at this first film in isolation, I, I just can't pick much in the way of flaws. Of it. And I agree, Rich, I think there's definitely a degree of snobbery about this film, and it's seen as just sort of another family-friendly Spielberg film. And I know a lot of people sort of kick back against some of his tropes and some of the things that he puts in, like these sort of... Spielbergisms like there's always got to be a reference to a you know a family divorce or a broken family and you know and, and again the two kids in the film Lexi and Tim you know they're coming from a family where the you know where the parents are, are, are going through a divorce which is is something which often crops up in Spielberg films but I think you know from a construction point of view it is so well put together you know let's go back to the beginning you know the, the you know how the film came to be I think it was 1990 Crichton first released the the, the Jurassic Park book I think it was Spielberg had a conversation with Crichton about what he was working on at the time and Crichton mentioned he was working on a dinosaur book at which point I think Spielberg did a bit of a double take and from there on then he did everything he could to ensure that Spielberg had the film rights to make any subsequent film based on Jurassic Park. I think Crichton was paid a pretty hefty sum 
for those rights. And then I think he was later paid another sum where he was brought on board to, to you know to help with the screenplay. Mm. So it, it was a win-win situation for Crichton. Obviously, you know, the, the film it's a bit of a forewarning about the dangers of technology. And obviously, as we're you know we're coming into you know a century where you know we're seeing more, you know advances in medical technology and stuff like that. And certainly back in the early nineties, the idea of cloning was something that was you know seen as being something that could happen in the future. And then obviously it forms part of you know the plot of the most re- you know, recent Jurassic Park film where humans are cloned. And you know I think it's just sort of this this is something that Crichton's touched on before, like a, you know fear of technology in nineteen seventy three's Westworld, which obviously was mm. a bit of a you know a bit of a minor cult science fiction classic, but has now you know got a heck of a lot more recognition because of the um, you know the HBO yeah, TV series. show again. If you if you go back and watch Westworld, there's so much in that film that is both a precursor to James Cameron's Terminator in 1984, which I think you know I don't think it's any secret there that he was inspired by certain things from Westworld. You know the same then goes for Jurassic Park that you know Westworld was almost like a prototype for the story he would be telling here. It's clearly something that he's sort of very interested in, isn't it? And does his research in respect of it. And, and I think where Spielberg is concerned, I think that he was quite clear from the outset with making the film that, that he wasn't making a monster movie. He was, wasn't making a, a scary film. Mm. It was a film about animals. It was a film about about life. It was a th- film about excesses. It was a film about, well, how far is too far when, when mm. money's involved? What is... You know where you say about morality. Is there anything which is playing God? Is it wrong if we can do it? Why, why should you know? As Ian Malcolm says, because we can do it, should we do it? Yeah. Okay, I've misquoted him slightly there, but I can say it with the same panache. But and that is and that is the, one of the main themes of the film. You know, it, with all of the Spielberg tropes, as you as you say before. But it is it isn't just scary dinosaurs chasing people and and, and eating people. There there is there is a heart to the story, and it's and it's, it's a multi layered story. That's the whole thing. I mean, yeah, that's the whole thing. It, it's so easy to forget that Jurassic Park is a science fiction movie because it's not about that, as you say, Richie. It's it's about the characters. It's about all these other themes and ideas. And the fact that it's science fiction is kind of secondary. I mean, James Cameron actually tried to buy the book rights to Jurassic Park to just bring that point sort of full circle, he said. And I, I read an interview where Cameron explained that it would have been a lot scarier and sort of more reminiscent of um, of aliens just with dinosaurs. I guess we probably get more movies more closer to that idea later on in the series. As you guys say, it's so easy to it's so easy to lump Jurassic Park into the category of popcorn blockbuster, but it would just be doing it an an immense disservice because as as maybe simple might be the wrong word, but the character dynamics and the the character arcs are not revolutionary. They're very, very to the point, but they're just so well done and the performances are so spot on. There's an early scene where when Grant and Ellie meet Hammond and he asks them to come and check out his park and they're they're kind of skeptical until he offers to fund their research to which they have this natural reaction of just euphoric excitement and you really feel that moment and I can't really say that about a lot of modern films that go into that category of, of popcorn blockbuster summer movie. They don't do a lot of... There's no need to, to ram home who they are, where they're from, all the rest of it. So much is so... It's, we were talking the other day about how, how, how neat it is and how to the point it is. As you say, in that reaction there, you know straight away that this isn't about greed for those characters. This is about they're getting the funding for the job that they love, the job that they live for. So you know straight away we know exactly where their moral standpoint is, where the moral comp- 
where the moral compass points. They're about the research. They're about. They're not in it for for greed. They're not in it for for sort of um, any other reason other than to, to research it. So if they see it, the park sort of later on as, as we see how they react to it they're, they're not seeing it from the point that start at the beginning because you, you've got that you have that great introduction at the beginning of you know one of the the raptors sort of being transferred at the time we're not sure what it is then obviously we need to find out it's a velociraptor uh, you've got the character of Muldoon who's kind of like the you know the Jurassic Park ranger it's one that's played for scares and it's sort of like you know it's an ideal introduction into the into the film we're going to be seeing and but then you move then into the um, I think it's the archaeological digging is it in Montana you know Alan Grant who is a paleontologist and and his partner Ellie Sattler who's a paleobotanist you know it's never made sort of overtly clear that they're in a relationship but you know clearly they are so much stuff in such a little time is established about the character certainly about Alan Grant the fact that he doesn't like children you've got that brilliant scene where you know they, they're using the seismic charges to sort of um, yeah. locate these these skeletons of dinosaurs you know he makes the comment about the fact that dinosaurs and this is, this is something else which you know Jurassic Park helped to put the idea out there that you know a lot of dinosaurs are more like the, the sort of evolutionary predecessors of birds based yeah. on their skeletal structure and and you know the, the makeup of, 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 of their bodies and you know I think a lot of people balked at that like like a scene in the film and you've got you know everyone's laughing and that little kid just says you know he, he looks like a giant turkey and then he pulls out that raptor claw and there's that really cool scene where he's saying about what the raptors would do, the fact that he believes they're, they're pack hunters, and, you know, they wouldn't just snap his neck or, or just rip his throat out. They would, you know, claw him with those big six-inch retractable claws. And without even showing anything, it gives you a great idea as to how horrific it's going to be to be attacked by one of these things. This is all set up. It's set up for the character. And, you know, again, Alan Grant's story arc is going to be the fact that he doesn't like children, but as we see later on in the film, he's sort of forced into this life-and-death situation with children, and children who he then warms to. Characters don't always have to go through, you know, a, you know, a deep and meaningful character arc. You know, when it's done in such a way like this, it makes you care more about the characters, and certainly as we'll see in later films, my issue with some of the later films is I just don't give a damn about the characters, whereas, you know, in Jurassic Park, Spielberg... He takes a lot of time to you know, he he puts across the minimum amount of exposition, but he doesn't you know he doesn't short shrift us on exposition. We know exactly who these characters are, where they're coming from, you know why they'd be sort of enticed to go to this island and see these dinosaurs. And you know the thing that surprised me is how quickly the film moves along. Yet at the same time, he manages to fit in these sort of these lengthy sort of scenes where characters are sat down. And the best example I can think of is when they get to the island and, and after they first see the brachiosaur, which we'll, we'll come back to in a minute. But when they you know they go and they have, they're having that dinner and they're having that sort of theological debate about the morality of, of what John Hammond is doing here, that scene is just absolute perfection. The dialogue, the performances, the editing. You could argue it's both an exposition dump. And at the same time, putting across, you know, a good bit of meat to sort of get your teeth into to give you something to think about, as opposed to, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but certainly one of the sequels that is just literally nothing more than a cheap action adventure film. You know, Jurassic Park has got so much depth and I don't think it gets the credit it deserves. It's the exposition. You could argue that's an exposition dump, but I think by that point we've already learned so much about the characters that we buy into the conversation that they're having. So you don't feel removed from the story at all. It it is it's a natural conversation because of what we know about those characters, the questions that are being asked. We believe that it's their questions. We don't believe that as though they've said, there's you know the the writing room have said, oh hang on, we've got to chuck in the morality tale here, or we've got to chuck in the backstory here. It feels incredibly organic. As I say, it's I don't think that it is light on exposition. I just 
think that it is so well done. It is it, it, it's perfect. The exposition, the way it's it's short and it's sharp, and we're from looks, from reactions. It's so well done, and I think that the the cast as well going into this film, you know, Sam Neill. Granted that you know he was he was a well known name, but he wasn't you know he wasn't a leading man then. He wasn't you know he'd been in a number of films, but he'd always sort of you didn't automatically think that he would be the person that would be playing this character if you were to read the book. Not that I have, but my understanding of the character Sam Neill wasn't necessarily the ideal person that that would have been at the top of everyone's list, and it transpires that he was perfect for it. Well, Harrison Ford was offered the role originally and can't even imagine anyone else playing Alan Grant which is an easy statement to make about any sort of big lead character in a really popular and ultimately timeless movie but which is funny because and I know we're not getting into the sequels just yet but on on that note Jurassic Park 3 felt like a a poor man's Indiana Jones movie where I felt like Alan Grant was made into this sort of action adventure hero obviously we'll get back to that a bit later but I found with the roundtable discussion everything the characters had to say not only was there maybe some exposition there but everything they had to say was sort of almost defining of that character you know Ellie is she's clearly in awe of the park but she's cautious about it grant is rational and kind of tentative about about what it all means for life as we know it and then ian malcolm who we haven't even addressed yet is is just obviously adamantly against it and the only person who's all for the park is the uh, blood-sucking lawyer um you know i'm not saying that there's i don't i don't mean there's that there's like too much exposition in the film or, or the fact that the, you know the exposition is obvious Actually, you know, completely the opposite. The fact that any exposition in the film is literally just so well masked in these scenes that yeah. just this roundtable discussion is one of the best scenes in the film. I, I can't think of, of many scenes where you've got people sitting around a table and it's just so riveting. All right, you know, you've got entire films which manage to do that in you know films like Twelve Angry Men, which is just you know twelve guys sat in in a in, in a room just off off a courtroom, you know, having heard a case, discussing you know whether or not this young man is is guilty or innocent. And you've got in this scene here, which you know, I, I can't, you know, recall exactly how long the scene goes on for. But at no point am I thinking, yeah, yeah, come on, let's just get on with it. Let's get back to the dinosaurs. And I think the thing it does really well is this acts as, you know, a buffer after you've seen that incredible reveal of the Brachiosaur. And as soon as they get to the island, Spielberg, did he did just the right thing. He showed us something magnificent. And for me, there are a few scenes in cinema that will move me as much as that, you know, that first Brachiosaur scene goosebumps every single time but we are as the audience we are we are those characters we are wowed by what we see we we're seeing a brachiosaur there we're seeing this real life so then it's the sweetener isn't it before what's to come so let's from john hammond's point of view it's well yeah there are there are ethical questions there are other questions but look at look at this this Mm. is it it, it's it's telling us it's trying to reassure us as an audience as well granted we've had that first hint from the start of the film that there is danger to come however you know, you're supposed to be overwhelmed by what you see. You're supposed to be completely absorbed by it and think that everything is going to be amazing and everything's going to be lovely. And clearly it isn't. Yeah, and I think the other thing that helps Jurassic Park just just work like it does is is the editing. Now, it was edited by Michael Kahn, who's been a long-time collaborator with Spielberg. And, you know, I think you've said in the past, Hayden, that you haven't always got, you know, a, a conscious eye for what makes a, a well-edited th- you know film, but I think you know everyone who is is a lover of film will at least have a some a subconscious idea of, of good editing. It, it makes everything feel just right, and I I think Jurassic Park is one of the most well-edited films I've ever seen. The way one scene finishes with a line of dialogue that 
feeds perfectly into another scene that happens elsewhere like scenes like um uh, you know when the, when the actual tour of the park begins and then you know the nedry and whatever are chatting and bickering and then muldoon says quiet they're heading towards the tyrannosaur paddock then yes. we cut to the tyrannosaur paddock yeah and i think there's a scene later on where john hammond says where are my grandchildren and then it cuts yeah. to back to the tyrannosaur paddock in the storm and then we're obviously going to go into that amazing scene where you know the, the the first T-Rex attack, and there's just so many great transitions from one scene into the other. You know the, the way you know the scene construction. At no point do I think there's a scene that you could remove from that film without really upsetting the structure of it. And you know, let, let's look at that scene where they you know they first see the Brachiosaur. You you just listen to John Williams' score and the build up to it before the full reveal of the dinosaur, and it's it's almost like a quite a tense mm. bit of music. And then soon as we see that Brachiosaur and we see the fact that it's not a T-Rex or anything that poses like a, an overt risk to them, the way the music just sort of... Swells. Yeah, swells and transitions into something far more romantic. You know, you see as the Jeep is approaching, Ellie sat, sat in the van, she's looking at some leaf from a plant that she, you know, you know, she's curious about. She's thinking, you know, this isn't supposed to be growing That's here. That's right, yeah. And then Alan Grant just stands up in this, this open-top Jeep, just completely wide-eyed. He removes his glasses. Fumbles his glasses. Fumbles his they? glasses off, yeah. Ellie is sort of muttering. He grabs her head and turns it. You know, even like Ian Malcolm and, you know, the lawyer, Gennaro, is yeah. just completely awestruck. And then the other great reaction there is John Hammond himself. Because, you know, he has got a, you know, a past in, in entertainment, in, in like sort of street sideshow type things. And this is like the ultimate extension of that. And he is doing this because he wants to see people's sort of wide-eyed awe, this amazing thing that he's created. Everything just works so perfectly. And I think even to this day, the special effects on the Brachiosaur, the fact that when you're dealing with cutting-edge new effects, like they did in, say, for example, Star Wars, you do it against a fairly black or dark background. So back you know, in those days, it was to hide the matte lines. And then when George Lucas became a lot more confident with that, with the second film, The Empire Strikes Back, he did the thing that probably he was being told not to do by the likes of Phil Tippett and Dennis Muir, and he was saying, "Don't put it against a stark white background yeah. because it's not going to look real." But no, he you know he thought, "No, we can do it. You know, we can have." And you know, as, as is shown with the Battle of Hoth, they, they do it in a brightly lit scene because at that point they're really confident with the effects. But bearing in mind, Jurassic Park was you know after Terminator to the first film where CGI was employed to any degree like this, and. You know, they were making up a lot of these techniques on the fly. This is, you know, I can't think of a film, you know, apart from maybe Terminator 2, where, the, you know, the special effects were developing at such an incredible rate. The first time we see a dinosaur is in a bright green, you know, it's, 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 it's daylight, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it's the movement of the dinosaur, it's the sense of scale which has got across, the fact that when he rears up on his hind legs and, you know, the tree is actually being moved. Yeah. You know, I think they had the top of the tree on cables and were pulling at it. And then when the dinosaur falls back down and makes that almighty thud, you know, I think they actually used the sound of like felled giant redwood trees to make that sort of boom noise, which they later then used with the T-Rex. It's just incredible. That, and that, uh, when you think as well, that, as I said, that's the first scene that we've seen the dinosaur in. And again, it's daytime. So everything that could be exposed, you know, everything possible could be exposed there. They'd be forgiven for doing a quick cutaway shot or a head shot or something, but no, they don't. They show the full body. 
They show him go up on his hind legs. So you've got you know range of movement there. You've got him pulling at the trees. It's a case of it's so confident, but it, it's backed up by you know the goods are there. It is it is this is what we can do. You know they they there's no they don't pull any punches at all. It is it's showcasing exactly sort of what's to come and and you know with the technology there. But it, it doesn't again it doesn't feel gratuitous. It doesn't feel out of place. You 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 sort of believe that that is there. That and you know 25 years later you struggle to to pick a hole in in those. In, in that sequence you really would and having seen sort of the more recent films with obviously the technology has advanced further I would argue all day long that the the, the, the blend of CGI with, with animatronics and everything in this film far outshines what we've seen in the more recent films far outshines and, and that's with, with 25 year later cutting edge CGI as well I can't cover it any better than you guys have. All I can point to is if we even just imagined that that scene was cut together differently and had they not bothered to take a really patient approach to showing the characters' reactions before then finally revealing the dinosaur. Imagine had they decided that they would show the dinosaur first or that they would have even just the footsteps before we saw Grant spot the dinosaur or if we started seeing limbs or the fact that it starts with the characters. That's the kind of thing that puts us in their shoes and makes it our experience as much as Grant and Ellie's and all the rest of their their own experiences. That's an example of, of Steven Spielberg's genius viewing things from a child's eye. That that's that's what it is. He he was obsessed with dinosaurs when he was a child. That was a massive motivation for him in making this film. And throughout this with the characters with 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 Grant and Ellie, they're so passionate about dinosaurs, they're they're reduced to being children. We are reduced as an audience to being children. And that is that's exactly it. They, they are us. What they're seeing, we're seeing everything in the same time as them. So our wide-eyed, wide-mouth reaction to that brachiosaur is replicated on the screen by those characters. And we're following their path because they are us, uh, yeah. certainly in that sequence. And then even shortly after, Grant gets out of the car and he, he basically collapses because he's he's so taken by the moment. And it's just such a real experience for us as viewers you just do not see that anymore and i know that that is a phrase that is tossed around so haphazardly about modern films compared to maybe some of the classics but you just don't you don't get to see characters have such such natural reactions to incredible moments happening in front of them yeah you know i think there's an argument that i think at the moment now we're not just seeing we're not seeing much in the way of things that we've never seen before. CGI now has been with us for, you know, a quarter of a century. You know, it's the most prominent sort of form of special effects, as in like a tool that's going to be used to show us things we haven't seen before. And unfortunately, these sort of jaw-dropping, you know, wide-eyed awe experiences are something which are few and far between these days. But I think back in that time, back in like the, you know, the early 90s, we were seeing films like that. And you, you talk about, Rich, you know, the fact that there's like a sense of awe and wonderment about dinosaurs. You know, we've all been little boys once. Who doesn't love dinosaurs? Yeah, exactly. No, I've got a, I've got a four-year-old son that is just completely obsessed with dinosaurs. He's grown up with you know growing up with these films. He loves them, and I know you know he is only four years old, but he's seen them all because they you know there's there's not much in them that yes they are scary, but you know I couldn't not show a little boy who's completely obsessed with dinosaurs these films, especially then when his older his seven-year-old brother's also watching them. He's, yeah. he's like, oh, daddy, I want to watch it. I can't, I can't 
say no to him but you know obviously Hayden you, you were born after Jurassic Park so you, you haven't sort of seen this transition from practical effects into CGI and like, and like Richie says and like we've mentioned before you know I've cited examples like Starship Troopers where you, you've got a mixture of CG practical effects and you know matte paintings and, and all sorts and when you don't just rely on on CGI itself you rely on other sort of you know means of achieving special effects and putting them on screen I think that's when you get the sort of best blend then you look on paper you know at Jurassic Park it, it's based on a book by a guy who knows his science I think Michael Crichton's more than proved that you've got a director who is known for making these films where you know I can't think of any better director if you're going to make a film about dinosaurs where you want to get across as opposed to say maybe the sort of horror route to someone like maybe James Cameron may have gone down just celebrating the wide-eyed wonderment of the fact that if they ever did sort of recreate dinosaurs that is what it would be like you know for a lot of people but then you had the one thing of how are they going to do it how are they going to put it on screen and, and you know i think that the sort of evolution of the effects as this film was being made is fascinating because originally they were looking to do it with some form of stop motion phil tippett who was like you know the one of the forerunners of stop motion effects he was responsible for the, the you know the battle of hoth in the empire strikes back he did the uh stop motion effects on ed 209 in robocop you know sorry guys it's a <laughs> I don't think an episode would go by without me mentioning Robocop. Well, we've done Marvel, you know, we've done Robocop, yeah. so we've... But, you know, Phil Tippett was... And, and it's great because you had this nice little sort of side story behind the scenes of just like Ellie and Dr. Grant say, well, what are we going to do now? Are we going to keep digging up dinosaurs? Because effectively we're extinct. And Alan Grant says, well, we're going to have to evolve too. And that's exactly what Phil Tippett had to do. Because Dennis Muren, when uh, he put forward some tests as to how good the CGI was and, and what they were able to do and get fluid you know, motion of these creatures, Spielberg was like, you know, I think we can actually do this. At which point Phil Tippett was left thinking, I'm going to be out of a job. Mm. But then what he, he did, which was really clever, was the fact that Phil Tippett, because his art form at the time involved sort of meticulous painstaking manipulation of these robotic armatures in order to create fluid movement he said to Spielberg well why don't I work alongside the CGI department me and my team can sort of advise them as to how to best use these computers to get realistic movement the fact that they would do it like from a, an inside out way first off you'd build in the computer the skeleton then you'd apply like the musculature and then you'd have like the skin on top because you know you watch when the brachiosaurus walking towards that tree there's a sense of mass towards it there's a sense of the fact that this is a giant creature with like sort of flesh hanging off the mm. bones and it, it, there's like a fluid movement to it. And this is literally probably the second time that CGI has been used to any significant effect in a film. I think even if you look at the amount of CGI effect shots in Terminator 2, it's a fraction of the running time compared to how many shots there are in Jurassic Park. Yeah. So in just two years, we're making a massive leap forward. I, I will stand by it that the effects in the first film and I think also the second film, they are better than any of the effects in the subsequent films, which have obviously come out in 2001, 2015, and 2018. Yeah, I, I think it's because the technology hasn't changed. The technology has only improved. But I think it's the people behind the scenes, the sort of art, you know, the artists who are taking their time to you know, create these effects and, and to blend it with practical effects as well because Stan Winston did, you know, did some amazing work you know, on the practical effects, like the close-up giant versions of, of the T-Rex the Triceratops and, and the Velociraptors. And, you know, as much as you can tell sometimes what are, are CG effects and what are not, you know, I think ultimately the blending of all these different styles just comes together perfectly to sell the fact that these are, you know, real living, breathing creatures. Absolutely. Yeah, so that, you know, that's 20 minutes in and we first see dinosaurs or, or see, you know, we also see then, you know, a herd of, I think, hadrosaurs or something similar. And then, you know, off in the distance, we see more, more brachiosaurs. Obviously then that is like the perfect, 
point at which you know and then i think the music becomes a, you know, a lot more sort of like serious and you know they go back to the you know the main park building they have this amazing scene which we just talked about there by this point we're completely in and yeah. then after that, John Hammond says they're here. Then we've got the introduction of his grandchildren, Timmy and Lexi. Lexi. I know there's sometimes when you have kids in a film, you know, how many times have we seen it recently where you have irritating children spoiling a film? What is your, what, what's your opinion, Hayden, on the use of the children in the film? I mean, I don't want to, there's probably no point in drawing the comparison, but I'm going to anyway. You can look at the children in Jurassic World and that's all you need to see to be able to, to acknowledge how well the kids in Jurassic Park are written and not only that but how well they're, they're performed by the actors and their names I don't have their names in front of me it's Joseph Mazzallo plays Timmy who we've just seen playing John Deacon in Bohemian Rhapsody uh, the other one is uh, Lexi played by Ariana oh, Richards yeah. uh, you know I've not seen her in anything else really after this but apparently she is like you know all for you know lending her voice to you know things about dinosaurs and, and making public appearances and stuff like that and she sort of you know she sort of become you know a, a bit of a you know enthusiast as a result of it and i think she had you know when you hear him speak about it they had nothing but a positive experience shooting the film and i think yeah. it's you know how many how many times up to this point did spielberg work with children close encounters you know he's work, working with little carrie guffey gets an amazing performance out of him et which you know contains some of the best child performances I've ever seen. He's the ideal director to be working with kids, and at no point have I ever felt that these kids are irritating. You know, I, I think they're a perfect foil to sort of you know get Alan Grant to become more you know less of just a serious academic that's obsessed with his work and more of a sort of potential father figure. They don't overplay. They don't. They, they, they don't. They don't stand out as irritating. They. They. They're very. They're very subtle in there. Sort of in the initial stages, we're getting to know them again alongside Alan Grant. We're getting to know the characters. And then by the time they're they're locked in the kitchen with with the raptor pursuing them, you believe that Lexi is you know frightened for her life. She thinks that you, you just you, you buy their performances very well. They're, to be fair, you've got different types of child actors who go on to bigger and better things. Some do, some don't. We had conversations before about this, and I think that arguably there's there's very good child performances out of these actors and and it's surprising that they haven't gone on to bigger things or been more well known as they've as they've gone forward yeah i think that happens to a lot of child actors but i think yeah they both put in great performances what spielberg does with the children he does which something which a lot of directors shy away from you know they get beaten up quite a bit you, know, you watch by the end of it they're covered in cuts and bruises and grazes timmy gets electrocuted yeah. right granted it would probably <laughs> it, it probably would kill him there's only one little bit that irritates me, and it's when during the first T-Rex attack on the vehicles, is when Lexi gets the the flashlight out and starts shining at the T-Rex. Yeah, it's like why the hell did you do that? I know you know when yeah. kid, when kids are scared and they're in the dark and there's a monster chasing them. First thing they're going to go for is a torch. Yeah. but you know that bit kind of annoyed me a little bit. But other than that, you know that's that's a really minor nitpick. But you, you again, it's as we said, it's, it's Spielberg's ability to direct children to get the best out of children. There's the, you know the, the famous story with Poltergeist. I know he's not credited as the actual director for that, but he did an awful lot on that film. And the scene where Heather O'Rourke's character is is on the bed and is being pulled into sort of into the other universe. She's screaming and screaming, and by all accounts, she was absolutely petrified. And that was the only thing that she, he had to comfort us. Spielberg comforted her after, and and promised that he wouldn't make her do that scene again. He doesn't. I don't think he talks down to children. I don't think he, he patronizes children. He, he he talks to them on their level uh, and gets the best out of them because he, he he also doesn't shy away from doing things with them. There isn't a, an immediate sort of we're going to replace you with small actors or you know he puts them through these experiences. As you say, he get, they get beaten up. They're, they're along for the ride, and they'll he gets more out of them by his by by his manner and his approach. I think. Yeah, and you know, obviously you've got this really big elaborate you know park with 
living, breathing dinosaurs which Hammond has set up and then you've got this awesome scene with the question of the morality of everything and the fact that, you know, the chaotician, uh, Ian Malcolm is saying that you can't predict, you know, what will happen in a situation like this. And ultimately, and, and going back to a scene that we've not talked about yet, the failure of Jurassic Park comes down to human error and human foibles like greed. And you go back to the scene earlier on introducing one of the you know the other supporting characters, and that's one of the things that, that strikes me about Jurassic Park is how well-rounded and how well fleshed out and just how interesting and likable or dislikable the supporting characters are. Mm. Characters like Wayne Knight playing Dennis Nedry, Samuel L. Jackson playing Arnold, and you know, then you've got characters like Muldoon, you know, the park ranger played by Bob Peck. Mm. You've got a little setup where Wayne Knight meets Dodgson, uh, who works for one of InGen's rivals, uh, rivals, and he, he's looking to make a, a killing by selling off some of the embryos. So um, you know their rivals can also you know, make their own version of yeah. Jurassic Park, and and that that's the thing that sets into motion. Then obviously a series of events where things start to go really wrong. You realise it's not as perfect as John Hammond it is, yeah. is led to believe. Because the one thing that you know John Hammond can't have complete control over, he can have control over computer systems, but he can't have control over the people that's responsible for them. Yeah. And obviously there's been some issues which you know he sets up in just a few lines where Dennis Nedry has got financial problems and John Hammond is berating him for them. All all the little interactions just in this control room between, you know, Muldoon and Hammond and Arnold and Nedry are just it's all so well written and it's all so well played and and goes so you know, such a long way to sort of ramping up the tension when things do start to go south when Nedry clicks his little button on the computer starts that countdown and all the systems in the yeah. park start shutting down and then there's even a bit you know where Nedry is going to get you know the embryos and, and try and make his way in the jeep to the ship and again none of this involves dinosaurs and I think it's something that Spielberg would like to do to you know to good effect in in the lost world where a lot of the really good scenes involve intention and, and, and you know where you're kind of like sort of edging closer toward towards the edge of your seat don't always involve dinosaurs yeah you know, they involve a character trying to get from A to B. Like, you know, as much as we don't want Nedry to succeed, at the same time, you've got that thing of, oh, you know, I, I can't, I don't want to say I, you, know, you want him to succeed, but there's a part of you just, that just, is just putting yourself in his position. But this is again, clearly, I'm, I'm, I'm a fanboy for Steven Spielberg, but it, it, it's, it's doing Jaws again. It's that, it's mm. that, how far into Jaws is it before we see the shark? Before we actually see the shark? And yeah. with this, you know, we're led to believe that the, the monster for this film is the T Rex arguably the, it's, it's the raptors however 45 minutes into Jurassic Park before we see the T-Rex it's around that point isn't it in yes that, it is Yeah, you know, and it's the slow reveal and, and, and it is these things where all of the different elements come together to build that tension to build that you know with, from the score the direction the editing and as you say on the face of this film this is a film about dinosaurs well it's so expertly executed mm. And, and the use of, of tension, the use of music, the use of uh, of editing. As you say, that, that scene there doesn't involve any dinosaurs. You know, that, that's the driving force of the story, but it, it, it's such a such a tense scene, such a tense sequence. And I think from, I think you, you say there, Rich, obviously you've got 20 minutes in, we see the Brachiosaur, and then I think 25 minutes on, you've got scenes of a round table discussion, then they get into the Jeeps, and then you've got this bit, you know, another scene that probably lasts about 20, 25 minutes of them driving around the park and not actually seeing anything other than, you know, the the, the fallen triceratops who's, mm. who's obviously being poisoned because it's eating the wrong plants. But again, we're, we're getting sort of drip-fed these things, you know, you could argue that on paper, you know, that's going to be making the audience twitching in their seats, going to get them bored, but it's not. Spielberg is the king of showing when to reveal the monster, and obviously it was just out of necessity in Jaws because the shark wouldn't work, and it mm. worked to the film's benefit but that was obviously something that it was an accident a sort of happy accident that he's carried forward into Jurassic Park I think the timing 
each little beat where we we move from you know one scene of dialogue into a scene of tension and then the big reveal the construction of that in this film is done better than any other film or as good as any other film i can think of would you agree hate 100 i might be hammering the point home but i think that a lot of the praise that we're heaping on this film for the way in which on paper it may be slow it may have audience members you know shuffling in their seat but it doesn't and i think it all comes down to the efficiency of the character work that's done so it goes right back to the script which i think is a really really confident script oh yeah the, you know the, the, the script is is their second to them you know you've got a lot of potential techno babble but you know it's put across in a, in a way and god how effective and efficient is that use of the little sort of you know theme park video that john hammond Mm. shows them with the animated mr dna yeah i'm just thinking watching it yesterday you've got you know obviously we've seen the amber miners at the beginning where Gennaro goes to the dig and you know we see that there's a mosquito in in amber but then we don't know the significance of that until later on and then you've got this really cool perfectly made animation which shows us exactly what we need to know because the big question is how the hell are these people recreated dinosaurs and we're shown in one short yet entertaining scene exactly how they've done it so yeah, you know, and that that's all down to the writing. But as well, it's someone who we haven't really mentioned yet is um, David as Richard Attenborough. Yeah, you know his performance, and and who better to confidently or to to take the audience or to give an audience confidence in in his description of of, of the recreation of animals than the brother of the greatest wildlife presenter and you know David Attenborough. Absolutely. Obviously, he was chosen for, for his acting prowess and what have you. But there's a bit of me inside that thinks, well, if we want someone, if if we want to sort of buy people's confidence in a person's beliefs or that they're doing the right thing where animals are concerned, let's pick David Attenborough's brother. Again, you had Spielberg in Close Encounters was working with one of his favourite directors, Francois Truffaut, who took an acting part in the film. And again, you know, he's picked another director I'm sure he had a lot of reverence for, Richard Attenborough, who directed, you know, films like A Bridge Too Far and most famously Gandhi. Gandhi. And Attenborough's acting career is just, you know, phenomenal. You know, amazing films like, you know, Ten Relent in Place, you know, a little scene British thriller, which he's just phenomenal plays um you know real life serial killer and then you've got you know his his big studio pieces like the great escape which yeah oh, you know i think that's probably the first time I, I i ever saw richard attenborough and you know he, he's just an amazing actor and you know his performance in the film it everything's perfect even after things have gone pear-shaped he's still trying to sort of justify what they what they're going to do next we'll get it right next time he's coming from a good place isn't he he isn't a tyrant he isn't the person yeah. who's, who's he isn't trying to make money he's going for that you know it explains it again his his drive is he was this performer he was a street performer he had his um, flea circus and and as you said before he wants to recreate that on a grander scale and what how big how bigger a scale can you get his is about spending his money to create the perfect theme park see I'm not I'm not sure how I feel about what you say in terms of, of course, he's not a villain. You know, he's not malevolent. He has no sinister intentions whatsoever. Hammond is is a bit of an enigma. He's this really fascinating character because to me, a lot of what he does is about status. He wants the biggest park in the world. He wants the endorsement of the top names in the business. He wants the best IT guys and he wants the best security. A guy who is openly against the dinosaurs, but he just shrugs it off because because, uh, because Muldoon is the best of the best. Mm. And as he says over and over again, he spared no expense. He is, it's almost boasting. He wants everybody to to see him and see what he's creating. So there is an element of self-indulgence. And he sort of obviously goes down that naturalist, mm. naturalist path in the sequel. 
but I think there is there is also that element to the character um, in this one. You're right there, and I think in you know in order to to have been successful to the level that he has been successful, you have to have that element there. Ultimately, he he wants what he wants, and at the end is going to justify the means. Uh, and in order yep. to be successful and to and to be able to to do that, he needs to be ruthless to an extent. He needs to be able to not pull his punches, and he needs to 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 be the boss. And everyone's going to have to come along and see his vision. Otherwise, there's someone else that is waiting to fill their shoes. But what he also does is, you know, like you say, he wants to be the best. He wants to be the person to sort of put his stamp and his trademark on this amazing thing he's created. But what he's doing is he's surrounding himself with very able people. But a lot of those people, such as Muldoon, are telling him. You know, they should all be shot or yeah. should all be destroyed. You know, talking about the Raptors. You know, obviously Muldoon is getting paid a princely sum, so he's just going to carry on doing his job. But he is right. They are far yeah, too yeah. dangerous to be, you know, to ever be let loose. And, and you know, they're, they're intelligent creatures. We know nothing about them. You've got Ellie telling them about the fact that they, you know, they're inappropriately putting this, you know, certain types of plant life around, which are causing some of the dinosaurs to become ill. He's got all of these people on board, but what he's not done is take the time to sort of get from them all the information yeah. he needs in order to get this right and then he's also you know he's surrounded himself with people that maybe shouldn't be people that, you know as soon as you realize that someone like dennis nedry is someone that has got financial problems and his potential risk right i need to get rid of him yeah i need to get someone else on board but the whole thing the whole failure of the park is down to human error but ultimately the one that makes the biggest error is is john hammond by just rushing things and not doing things properly and trying to play god which is i think you know that's the ultimate message of the film absolutely well, as Ellie says to him, it's all an illusion, and he's he's in this he's in this sort of fairy tale in his head, and I think that's part of why, despite the fact that we see these you know these these character flaws with him, we sympathise with him as well. You know, when everybody voices their issues with the park in the round table, again we're going back to that round table scene, and for good reason, you feel for him because he was hoping so desperately that these people were going to be on his side, and all yeah. of a sudden he feels kind of ganged up on. Yeah, but he's he's hearing what he doesn't want to hear, isn't he? he yeah. He, he thinks if if I can get people into a dinosaur experts, these who's going to want to see real life dinosaurs more than the people that are, that spend their lives digging up bones and, and researching them? Now they can come and they can research them in their natural habitat. But he, then they're also the people that know about yeah. these animals' behaviour, about Absolutely. the fact, and it's like mm. Ian Markham says, obviously. John Hammond brings up the thing of condors, an endangered species, or, or, or a, spe- you know, a species on the verge of extinction. Would it be morally right for us now, with the technology, to help the species out by cloning? And he says, Ian Malcolm says, no, dinosaurs had their chance. Yeah. Evolution chose to single them out, and that was millions of years ago. I think there's other issues which people have touched on You know, when this became a potential possibility and an idea as to something we could one day be moving to. And a, I'm not sure, you know, what the current state is, but I, I think I've actually read that this whole thing of being able to obtain stable DNA from a fly or, or a mosquito trapped in amber is is literally negligible. It, it it just won't happen because I think as much as you know the you know the fly gets preserved, I think there's like a natural degradation over time, irrespective of whether or not it's preserved in, in amber. So mm. it, it it probably it will never happen. I don't think. But there's a lot of questions as to, you know, why should we do this and, and, and the potential dangers. And it's, you know, like Ian Malcolm says, they had their chance. Why are we now reintroducing dinosaurs into the mix? Because like he says, you know, one of the many phenomenal lines in the film that says so much is life will find a way. Yeah. And that's something that's carried forward throughout the series. Life is going to find a way. You cannot control nature. Creation, discovery, you know, what, what, what you call creation, I call the, you know, the rape of the, of, of the natural world. There's just so many great lines in there which just get the point across. And we know how things are going to go. 
you know, it effectively you could argue that it's, it's a disaster movie. How many times in disaster movies have we seen the same premise? Someone trying to create something new and unique, like you know, the big massive glass tower building in the Tower in Inferno, yeah. and you know they rushed and they were issues with cutting corners, making the thing, and then you know, lo and behold, the building catches a light, and then you've got a big disaster on your hands. Yeah. And you know, this is something that is you know, it's not it's nothing new, but the way it's employed and the way you know, and the manner in which it's done so is just is so well done. Everything about the film, the whole idea behind it, you know, the execution, the performances, the script, John Williams' score, which we're going to obviously come to later when we discuss um, favourite movie scores, Michael Kahn's editing, and just those incredible special effects. And then outside of that, you know, you've got a film that I was amazed when doing my research, I, the fact that, you know, you had Terminator 2, which cost $100 million in 1991. Then two years on, you've got a film that's got far more in the way of, like, cutting-edge special effects, but it only cost $63 million. But it's since go on, you know, it's since gone on, and I think he had a further boost when he had his 3D re-release a few years back to make well over a billion dollars worldwide. Let's talk about the marketing of the film, guys. We we've obviously talked about and something that's integrated in the film itself is the you know the actual merchandise. But what about you know just the simplicity of that logo, that poster, that Jurassic Park poster is one of the most effective and simple posters I've ever seen. It's, uh, well, it's reminiscent of the of the sorry of the alien poster. It's it's just perfect in its minimalism. It's you don't need to see any more than that, and it's it's striking. The the it's, it's coloured vibrantly, and it's on a black background. It's not a whole lot more you can say about it. It's just it's almost iconic. advertising. You know, it 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 it's coming from the angle of of advertising the park itself. Mm. It's not selling yeah. what the film is about. It's not giving away any characters. It's not giving away anything else. It's it's coming from the point of view of of what if this was real, if this if this was real. However, it being on a black background, it's sort of a bit more ominous. It's a bit sort of, it, it's not all that it seems. It's not some come to our park. It's selling the park first before any characters, before any plot points. There were further posters which gave sort of more away, but that initial poster, minimalistic, simple, this is what it's about. Yeah, you know, like we were saying, um, when I was on a chat with Paul Shipper, the, you know, the, the poster artist who's, you know, he's created posters for some of the biggest you know recent sort of summer blockbusters but he also acknowledges the fact that you've got these more minimalist posters and i think we mentioned in the episode the fact that you've got alien you, you've got a very simple simplistic image of, of an egg the title of alien that tagline in space no one can hear you scream and it just all perfectly sets across the mood of the film and it's like jurassic park it, it tells you exactly what you're going to be getting or gives you a good idea or certainly you know entices you to get your butt on the seat in the cinema to see a film about dinosaurs and I think, you know, that's another thing that worked in his favour. It was the first summer blockbuster involving dinosaurs. It was something quite unique and something we hadn't seen before. Much in the way that since the, you know, the big run of alien invasion science fiction films in the 50s, we hadn't seen anything like that. And then in 1996, Independence Day comes along. Yeah. And, that, and sort of like takes advantage of, of something that we've not seen for a long time. And obviously with Jurassic Park, something we'd never seen. Obviously, you, know, you can go back to films like King Kong. You know, there've been plenty of monster movies. You know, you know the 1976 King Kong. But nothing done on a scale like this by such a you know a competent director. So I just think you know everything came together and, and worked perfectly with the film. We we I mean we've we've talked about the different characters and actors, but we haven't we've not really spoken about Jeff Goldblum. Oh, Jeff Goldblum! You could you could have a podcast on Jeff Goldblum's performance in this film alone, couldn't you? Uh, he's he's just is there a cooler man on the planet? He no. is outstanding. He's he's yeah. he's. I mean, who put put, a, put a, a man in a film with Samuel Jackson and and Samuel Jackson not be the coolest person? Exactly. Yeah. He is. <laughs> you know, I, I made the mistake the other day when we were talking about it of saying that he's sort of the comic relief for the 
light relief. And what I was trying to say in that, he, he's not, he's far more than that. He is definitely the, the, the funny man to the Alan Grant straight man. However, he's, he's very wise. He's the person who you should dismiss as, you know, he's a bit of a Lothario, he's, he's flirting, he's joking, he's not taking things seriously. But actually, from the, from the man who's initially presented as a bit of a joke, certainly commented by John Hammond, you know, I, I, bring, the, um, I bring the scientist, you bring the rock star. He actually, he is the person with arguably the most knowing and the most telling view on what's going on. And he predicts from the outset, he's the warning mark, you know, the warning sign from the outset. Everything that he's warning about is coming true. And it's done in, 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 in his style. He, he's absolutely brilliant. All right, he's, um, I'd probably argue that, you know, he's, he's a great actor. So great in films like The Fly and then obviously most recently Thor Ragnarok. But, you know, his performance in this film is just amazing. And, you know, he does get taken out of the mix, um, you know, quite early on. You know, when he gets attacked by the T-Rex, gets his leg all busted up. You know, but he is still in the film. And, you know, how many times have recently have we seen those memes of, you know, you've got that one of him lying bare-chested, <laughs> all busted up, you know. With they made a model of, in London, yeah, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They made a big model of it in London. His performance, I would say, has gone into the realms of becoming iconic. Yeah. You know, you can get a Funko Pop of... Jeff Goldblum's character in this film. When you get a Funko Pop made of yourself, then I think you 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 know you've pretty much hit the big time. But yeah, it's an amazing performance. I can't think of a deaf note in the film. Yeah, all right, maybe we're you know are we offering any ob- objective criticism here? I think we are. You know, a few little nitpicks you've come up with, the, the flashlight scene and things like that. And yeah, you know, there, there is the argument that you know towards the end, there's no way they would have all survived. They wouldn't have come out unscathed. But when I'm watching the film. You know, we've had enough deaths. And you know, there's only three deaths in the film. Dennis Nedry, Mr. Arnold, his death happens off screen. We just see his severed arm. Yeah. And I think there's... Oh, and obviously Muldoon. On the toilet. No, no. Oh, um, oh of course. Yeah, yeah. So there's four Sister. deaths. Yeah, which is a and bit... The lawyer, yeah. yeah. The lawyer, because... <clears throat> yeah, now, flash forward to The Lost World, and Ian Malcolm makes a reference to the fact that three people lost their lives. Well, they didn't. We wasn't but then, aware of... I believe no one was aware of Dennis Nedry's yeah. death. So they even got it, you know, they even got it right with that. Yeah. Fair play. Obviously, we're going to be talking about each film in succession. What are we scoring Jurassic Park out of 10? Hayden, I'll start with you. I don't really do this, and it's not because I feel like my opinion is <laughs> particularly high. But go, with your, go, with your heart. Like go with your heart, Hayden. What does your heart tell you Jurassic a, Park it, is? It's, it's, a, it's a 10. It's yeah. Honestly, it's, it's become one of my favorite films over time. It, it just, as I said earlier, it grows larger in in my heart every single time I see it. Regardless of whether it's a blockbuster, popcorn film, it has elements that you just do not see anymore. And it's got heart, it's got this honesty, this authenticity, and you can you can tell how much love went into it just by watching it. Yeah, Rich. Yeah, I've got, I've got to agree. I've got to agree. It is one of my favourite films, and, and if it's not obvious, it's, it's going to be a ten from me. I struggle to to dock anything from it. Yeah, um, no surprise. It's going to be a ten from me as well. I think it um, you know, maybe it's just our perception. It doesn't get the credit it deserves, but I think it's a perfectly constructed film. It is, and I don't use the word iconic, but it is. You know, everything about the film. You, you know, the poster. You know, there's there's so many iconic scenes and images which have sort of bled into pop culture. I think it's a fantastic film. And I you know I I definitely think now it, it it would be higher up in my in my pick of uh, my top five Spielberg films. Maybe would even edge into my own maybe top twenty top twenty five favorite films ever. So let's move on. 1997, The Lost World, Jurassic Park. Hayden, I'll start with you. When did you first uh, see this film? 
So, as I said earlier, I was pretty late to the rest of the series, and I think I saw The Lost World. It was probably a couple of years ago. I didn't think much of it at the time. As I've said to you guys, I sort of felt like Ian Malcolm's character felt watered down. I felt like he was made into a little bit of a a stereotypical hero to fill that lead role. We've talked a lot about it. I've since rewatched the film over the weekend, and I think I've changed my tune. It feels like a natural progression for the character the film itself is much darker than the first film which is kind of saying something because jurassic park is certainly quite a dark film but this one sort of it throws you in almost immediately and it is kind of a bit of a roller coaster if if jurassic park we could describe as patient but efficient in terms of building up its story the lost world sort of doesn't waste any time in getting us into the action while its characters don't quite compare to the first films, there's still plenty to like here. And I don't think the criticism that I've seen seen online is actually deserved now looking back at it. Yeah, I, I, I saw it in the cinema as a massive fan of the first film. I couldn't wait for this film to come out. I've had a bit of a roller coaster relationship with this film. I think I totally understand what you're saying about the style of the film. It, it's with Jurassic Park being set within the park on, on that island. Everything is controlled to a point the, the, the things break free. The film itself is very controlled, and we're, we're, we're drip-fed things. This is the, it's the lost world. Everything is is open. Everything is wild, and the film is much more like that in structure. It is, or rather, it, as you say, it's straight in with the action. We do have the we, we, we do have the initial sort of character points, and we're picking up with the the after effects of what happened. And I think that point that's not worth noting. It was the first film that I ever saw on Sky Box Office in the UK. It was I was. I loved the film, you know, my, I managed to convince my parents to let me pay £15, whatever it was, back in the day on, on Sky to watch it. Having loved the first film, I was determined that I was going to love this film, and there were lots of bits that I did, but over time my relationship dipped with it, and I found that actually the characters weren't as engaging, and, and I felt that it was almost sully in the original film to an extent. After seeing Jurassic World, I didn't watch The Lost World for a long time, but after having watched Jurassic World, I revisited the first two films, and actually my opinion went back up, and I held the same concerns over uh, Ian Malcolm's character. Perhaps it was my younger mind, I just thought, he's a complete, he's played by the same person, and apart from the quips and the knowledge that he's brought from the first film, he's a different, he's a different character. But when you think about what little we know of Ian Malcolm from the first film, you know, we know what his job is, we know in a setting where he's not surrounded by any of his dependents, he's a particular character who comes across a particular way. Now you've got someone who's survived near death on this this island, which which he predicted would, would turn out wrong, and it did. We've got three years later, um, where sort of, you know, he's, he's published a book. He's not really... Um, Four years later, sorry, he's published a book. Um, he's tried to sort of sell the fact that, that you know people need to be away from this. He's battle damaged from it. Not only that, we find out that he's got a daughter from broken relationship. That was a surprise as well. He doesn't strike you as a father, but then he says in the, th- in the first film he's got three children. Does he say that? Yeah, does he? Yes. He does, yeah. Again, yeah. see, I, I, I missed out on that. Um, but it, it it comes as a bit of a surprise, and I suppose then he he's got a partner um, who's also interested in dinosaurs, so he he, he can't help. It's not interested in dinosaurs, just studies animals, but but he can't help but be drawn to that world. Where whereas I found to his his change in character, 
as I saw it, very jarring originally. Now that that doesn't, it feels natural for me. Now I I sort of I sort of get that we didn't need that backstory in the first film drummed into us, and I, I'm now accepting of that is him. Four years later, as you say, the, the the leads aren't as strong. Julianne Moore is very good. Vince Vaughn plays Vince Vaughn as only Vince Vaughn knows how to. Um, I think that's that's back in the day where Vince Vaughn was great. I, I think that was starting off with Swingers and then, you know, I think that is what got him the job on this film. By that point, I still think, and, you know, he's, he's proven himself since now in films like um, Brawl and Cell Block 99. You know, he's, mm. and, and, you know, some people would, would disagree and I don't think he was particularly great in, in True Detective Season 2. But, you know, I think he took a bit of a dip. Certainly, I'd say, you know, the worst of that probably would have been a year later in when he did that Psycho remake for Gus Van Sant. Oh, that loud. Yeah. Pete Postlethwaite, as, as we mentioned yesterday, I mean... He is, he's just, as I said, he's nails. He is, he is absolutely brilliant. He yeah. is, you know, this hard, gritty British actor. Clearly he's, he's, you know, hunter. He knows all, he's studied animals. He is, if, you know, if you're going to get lost on, on the second island with anybody, you want him on your side. Because if anybody is going to get you through that, it's going to be him. He is absolutely, he's brilliant. Again, no, they're not strong. They're not as strong personalities. The very fact that the film is darker it can come across as, as, as a negative but actually I think when you look at the two films as as one complete story we'll talk about the sequels later you know the old the classic go dark like Empire Strikes Back there, there is an element there and there's a far more positive about this film than what I for a long time gave it credit for yeah you know I, I was there from day one I was really eager to see it I'd, I'd read Crichton's um, follow-up novel before I actually saw the film you know t- I was still then a massive fan of, of the original Jurassic Park, so I, I just couldn't wait. And, you know, you say you've had a roller coaster kind of experience with it, Rich. I think I've probably been the opposite, and I've always been fairly fixed on my opinion of The Lost World. It's not as good as the first one. I, I think it, it gets a hell of a, a lot of unfair criticism. You know, one of the most ridiculous scenes in the film is Ian Malcolm's daughter, where she does that sort of acrobatic, you know, swinging on the bars move in order to take out the raptor. And a lot of people just sort of hold that one moment against the film and that's like what 30 seconds in, in like a, a two yeah. hour plus film you know I, I think people are being you know a little bit unfair on the film there yeah there's a few little things which you know either don't make sense or are a little bit silly but I think on the whole first off you know the justification for them going back to the island makes sense yeah you know after the first Jurassic Park fell apart and and another thing the Jurassic Park island we see Isla Nubla in the first film you know that is the theme park part of it realistically none of the actual genetic breeding of these dinosaurs you know was ever going to happen there yeah. you know in the same place that's just a theme park you know it makes sense that they would be this site b the place where all the actual research and, and well, you know the, the stuff goes on the opening sequence of jurassic park where is that raptor being shipped from yeah clearly it's from Isla sauna the justification for them going back makes sense the fact you could argue it's a little bit of a plot convenience the sarah hardin ian malcolm's girlfriend now has already gone there Ian Malcolm's coming back into the story, like it or not. I've got to say I like it because I think he's he's great. And, you know, anything where you see more of Ian Malcolm. And, yeah, he is a different guy. And, like, you know, like I was saying um, in the conversation we had before we, we recorded, I think it makes sense of where he is as a character now. He's not the cocky sort of, you know, flashy rock star that he was in the first film. He's gone through this traumatic experience. And then on top of that, he's had four years of public ridicule where people have not either not believed what he said or when he went, you know, he's gone against the non-disclosure agreement and actually spoken out about what happened on, you know, at the original, you know, Isla Nablar incident. So he's sort of become a bit of a, you know, a public pariah. He's had a harsh time. To be thrown then back into the mix, you could argue he's, he's, he's one of the perfect people there because he's seeing the other people's reaction to the dinosaurs. He's that perfect line of, yeah you know it's always ooh and ah but then you know it's screaming and running it's yeah. like yeah absolutely I love that line 
putting aside the, the gymnastics bit, you know, the relationship he's got with his daughter, these things which have been set up in the first one where he, you know, he says, I'm always looking for a future ex, Mrs. Malcolm. Yeah. So we, we know he's a bit of a guy <laughs> who, you know, has trouble holding down a relationship, probably because he's such, as John Hammond puts it, um, you know, he suffers from an excessive personality. <laughs> Yeah, the characters are not as, you could argue, not as fleshed out, certainly, you know, some of the minor characters. I think Arliss Howard's character, Peter Ludlow, who's putting on a bit of a poor English accent as, as sort of like the, the guy who's now taken over in Jen, I don't think is, I think his character's a little bit sort of sneering pantomime villain. But then you've got, you know, Richard Attenborough returns, albeit in a small role. Pete Postlethwaite's character of Roland Tembo is just, he, you could argue, he is sort of the flip side of the morality of going in to save these animals. He's the one that wants to go and, and, and hunt them. And if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, Vince Vaughn's character, you know, sabotages his, his, his elephant gun shells, he probably would have killed one of the T-Rexes mm. and, and you know, ultimately become the villain of the piece. There's some fantastic moments of tension building. Two scenes involving grass and glass. Oh. You've got Sarah Harding lying on the cracking glass, and as much as yeah, you know they should have all died, and yeah, it's it's sort of pushing you know what we're expected to you know, believe is plausible to its absolute limit. It's a really tense and well made scene. I take a, I, I do take exception to that view though that yeah they would have died, and and, and the criticism that's levied that because when we're watching a film about dinosaurs that have been recreated. I do think that you suspend your disbelief anyway, and you, actually, it's yeah, a really you, you do well yeah. executed action scene where you are on the edge of your seat watching because of the way that that glass is cracking that is possibly the highlight of the film. It is one of the best sequences in the film. And then you've got the other one, the transposing the, the Velociraptors, and they, they say he says, "Stay away from the long grass." And then you see that scene, yeah. and it's it's Spielberg recreating what he did in Jaws with that shark fin, but yeah, he's doing yeah. it out of the water. He's showing the raptors cutting through the grass at these group of people running into it. Yeah, and it's just he's sort of taken over the mantle of Hitchcock and become like a master of tension and suspense. And you know, I just don't think the film gets the credit it deserves. I really like the score by John Williams, who has created The Lost World has got its own theme, which is unique to that film, which wasn't repeated in any of the other films. I think it's one of my favourite scenes is the build up to the um you know the T Rex attack on the camp at night, the bit where he's you know putting his head in the tent going for the blood soaked jacket. The way that John Williams uses a piece of music that is basically like that bare bones stripped down jaws theme to build the tension up. Yeah. And I remember the first time I was watching it, I actually had that sense of unease, like when certain tones of music and, and sounds can be recreated to make you feel physically sick. Yeah. You know, there's certain frequencies of vibrations can make you feel physically ill. And I think Williams is a master of that, and he's not shown it anywhere better than in that scene. You know, re-watching it yesterday, I, I just, I've always been something of a defender of the film. I, I think its justification is sound. Obviously, we're going to see more. We do need a sequel to Jurassic Park. It was too much of a hit for us never to go back there. And again, the special effects, my God, they, moving on to the third film, as we will shortly, the effects are just really ropey all throughout Jurassic Park 3, whereas going back and watching, you know, The Lost World, the effects are on the whole outstanding. And there's still that sense of awe and wonderment. I give a shit about the characters. There's, you know, moments where I'm genuinely on the edge of my seat. Again, people rail against the San Diego scene. Seeing a T-Rex in an urban environment, in a city, eating people, works on two, on two levels. A, it is something great to finally behold. Yeah. And B, it's that perfect thing then for Ian Malcolm, who's been made out to be crazy, to be, you know, just a lunatic. It's like, I told you so. Yeah. And he did, he, like he says to Alice Howard's character, this is the bit where I, you know, I, I told you so. I, I like it. I'm sorry. It, 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 it's a far better made film, I think, than 
you know the three films we're going to be talking about and, and just cutting to the chase from purely entertainment point of view and the fact that you know i think a lot of the film's flaws are you know easily brushed aside because they're only brief ones that don't harm the film that much and yeah you know they are some i've got to mention the bit at the end where the boat um, crashes into the pier the men go on the boat to investigate they go into the little sort of enclosed ship's captain hut at the top of the building yeah. there's a steering wheel with a severed hand hanging that's off, right yeah yet that little cabin is completely intact how the hell is the T-Rex with this giant head going to get through? And do, it doesn't make sense. It's and, and from the first time I ever saw the film, I thought, oh, come on, Stephen, that's ridiculous. But, you know, there are a few moments like that. But for me, I think from a purely entertainment point of view, I, I think the film does a hell of a lot right. It's justified in its existence. And, you know, if the series had ended there, I'd be more than happy. And I think it's worthy for me personally of, a, of an 8 out of 10. I'm not going to go so far as an 8. I'm going to say 7.5. Only because whilst it is... It, like I say, revisiting it, and and my opinion has gone has gone up over time. It isn't quite an eight. It's 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 the best of the Jurassic Park sequels in my eyes. I personally don't think that it's quite worthy of an eight. So it's a seven and a half for me. I mean, going back to the the glass shattering, we're we're talking about a film that's a sequel to a movie where the boy Tim miraculously survives multiple vehicles falling on top of him. So there is definitely that suspension of disbelief, and that's that's etched into the franchise from yeah. from the first one. As I said, this film grew on me the first time I saw it. I didn't love it. Probably held it to too high a standard, maybe, um, or I expected something different to what I got. But I think Jeff Goldblum's deadpan delivery is just perfect. The dialogue, spot on. There are a few moments where the dialogue doesn't work for me, but overall, it's it's a solid film. Um, for me, it's probably it's probably a seven. And I agree, it's certainly the best sequel of the franchise. Yeah, guys, you, I think I'm struggling here with a little bit of objectivity and the fact that you know I've always been one of the pe- people fighting this corner. So that eight out of ten is a very personal score from a purely from a point of view with the actual quality of the filmmaking and taking into account some of the missteps the film makes. Yeah, a seven out of ten is more than fair and more than accurate. I think for that. So moving on, guys, two thousand and one. Jurassic Park 3. Rich, do you want to tell us um, <laughs> some of the behind-the-scenes issues that um, gave us the final film that we had? The Lost World performed very well, and a, and a third film was was probably always going to happen. And, and I think Steven Spielberg, knowing what was on his slate coming up, knowing that there was pressure to bring the film out as quick as possible, that you know we, we were entering the waters where, where the sequel turnaround was, was far greater, he realised that it wasn't going to be something that he was going to be able to do himself. He would remain executive producer and have um, a key role in it. The director... Uh, Joe Johnson had uh, lobbied himself to to direct it, and, and Steven Spielberg was happy for him to do so. Uh, and they and they sort of commenced work on it. But there were a number of issues from the outset. It's very troubled production. Trying to find uh, an original story, something which felt organic, something which felt worthy of of the films that had come before. It didn't feel just like a cash in. Was very difficult. And you know, I understand that the, the production date was set, and the final draft of the script was thrown out sort of within weeks before filming was due to start. They, they started filming and the script wasn't even finished. Sam Neill was back on board, which was obviously a, a big coup, a big coup for the production. Uh, and it was Sam Neill being back, which which brought a lot of interest and a lot of um, sort of attention for the film. Unfortunately, the shortcomings and the issues sort of behind the scenes and, and the rushed nature of the production are so abundantly clear from the film from the moment that it starts it, I, I remember I was in I was in university at the time and again loving the series I couldn't wait for this film Th- there's no escape in the fact that there are one or two scenes in there that have the potential to be very good quite well executed 
so much about what made the first film and, and much of the second film great are completely ignored in this film. You know, the slow approach, the, the patient approach to exposition, all the things that we've talked about at length the last hour um, over what made Jurassic Park such a great film. It's as if you just brought somebody in to, to make a straight-to-DVD sequel. Let, let, let's, let's get dinosaurs, let's get sort of action sequences, and let's just chuck them at the thing, and, and people will buy this shit because it's dinosaurs and it's Jurassic Park. Unfortunately, it, it really is showing. And, and the presence of Sam Neill is the only thing in it that makes it anywhere near watchable, I would say. The very fact that he's back. But even then, I, I think that his character is not paid well enough dividends to, to, to what has come before. And he's it, it, almost a parody of the character. It, it's, they, they do try to sort of progress his character somewhat and, and, and bring his gravitas in from the first film. But unfortunately the plot and the script let it down so badly that, that it's, it's, just, it's an awful shame. It's a completely wasted opportunity. Hayden, obviously having it being quite late to the table, seeing Jurassic Park 3, uh, what's your take on it? Uh, yeah, it's not great. <laughs> um, look, as I sort of hinted at earlier, I find Alan Grant just comes across as they wanted to turn him into an action adventure hero and he's he's not that he he wasn't that in the first film the characters that they threw in with him were completely forgettable i've already forgotten their names and what they looked like apart from the wife or the ex-wife who was pretty infuriating for most of the film there's so many half-baked ideas you know you've got the the kid that's gone missing who all of a sudden he's managed to craft himself into some sort of survivor you know that's a fun idea but they don't do anything with it they don't develop it they don't take it anywhere it's not adapted from a book as the first two were it had michael Crichton on for a few weeks i believe with the other screenwriters trying to trying to come up with an idea and he, he he left quite quickly because he just couldn't he couldn't think up anything and i just don't think it's a film that should, should have or needed to be made i think it does as you said rich it does a disservice to um alan grant as a character and sort of it sullies the first film a little bit i'm not saying that uh you know i'll go back and watch the first film and the third film will have an effect on how much i enjoy it. that's certainly not the case but i just think that if anyone's wants to you know dive into the series you just need to skip this one yeah it it, it some of the some of the the, the the better sequences or the better ideas were leftover ideas from the first two films the the aviary the tyrannodon avery that was an idea that that was for the first film and also for the second film but budget constraints and, and what have you and, and the very fact they were very full films already meant that they were sort of left out and i find the aviary sequence not necessarily the action that takes place within it, but the use of it, the the use of the mist, the the very fact that they would have this. Of course, they'd have a giant aviary because otherwise the Tyrannodons are going to escape. You know, it it the the use of that, the way that that's depicted, I think is is one of the the high points of the film. Agreed. Yeah. Um, however, sort of the hang gliding element that that goes on within is a little bit home alone, is a little bit sort of, it's pushing the boundaries again. And and as you say, because this this child who, who should really have been eaten within the first day that he was on the island has managed to survive, you do think, well, expectations are, are, are being blown out of the water that he's, you know, what isn't he capable of doing? It, it, it's just not in keeping with what's come before. It, it, at this point, we are firmly in the realms of disaster film or we're firmly in the realms of, of um, a sort of action film without really the intelligent heart and the intelligent mind that that, it, that was so littered through the first films, it was such a such a key part of the first films. Yeah, it's going to be difficult to add anything, which uh, you know, without going over you know what you guys have just said. But I think it's a very rushed film. That's you just look at the running time, ninety two minutes. 
you know, it doesn't take any time to have the characters discussing anything about the other morality of, of what's going on because that's already been done before. And there's nothing like, you know, the second film was about preserving these animals now and the fact that we've created them. And, you know, have they got a right to life now? Then, well, yeah, you know, there's a, a portion of people who believe they have and want to go in and save them. You know, the whole premise behind Jurassic Park 3 is you had this kid and his stepdad who end up paragliding near the island. You know, why would that be happening in the first place? Surely. Um, you know, if there's dinosaurs loose on this island, the Costa Rican government would have it under lock and key and have, like, you know, you know armed boats patrolled in the yeah. island. It's completely ludicrous. And then the fact that, you know, the kids' parents, um, they, they con Alan Grant into go into the island with him. Now, you know, they, they say, no, you know, we, we, we're getting married. We want to, you know, have a guided tour, you know, flying over the island. We want you to do it. You know, from the outset, I, I don't buy any of it. It's a completely unnecessary film. The special effects, um, watching it, you know, I watched this film last night. It's, it's really fresh on my mind. The special effects, I would say, in certain parts are poor. The effects on the raptors look generally great, but everything else, barring a few shots towards the end of the Spinosaurus in water, um, are really good. But then there's other establishing shots outside where you see, you know, some quite what should be epic shots of the Brachiosaurus walking along your mm-hmm. riverbank. They look really poor. And the fact that it's just a very short series of action scenes, one leading into the other, with some incredibly annoying characters. And, you know, I don't even want to waste that much time talking about it because we've got other things to discuss. Um, I think it's, <laughs> it's it's probably the poorest of the Jurassic Park sequels. I would say so. I, I probably think it's worthy of nothing more than a four out of ten. The, the one thing that I do want to say, which is something which has always grated on me, I can kind of accept that the Spinosaurus would exist, kind of accept that, without any previous mention of it, because they're very, they are very... Oh no, it is a real time. dinosaur. No, but what I mean yeah. is as in it would exist on that island without any yes. reference previously, yeah. as in why was it not on Jurassic That's Park? That's right, yeah. So I can kind of accept that perhaps it was it was a dinosaur that they hadn't yet created the pen for, I don't know. Yeah. But So I accept that it's there... But one of the best and most iconic sequences from Jurassic Park is the sequence with the Tyrannosaurus Rex. The first reveal when they're in the uh, when they're in the jeeps and the glass of water is shaking on the dashboard. Yeah. So we know that a dinosaur of the size of of the of the T Rex, we can we know it's coming because we can feel the ground vibrating. Then you've got a scene in Jurassic Park three where they get through the electric fence. We know that the Spinosaurus is coming. Mm-hmm. It's, we can, there's rumbling of the trees. The camera pans away or cuts away, and then it cuts to the Spinosaurus being directly behind them. How have they not felt the ground? How, how does how does yeah. a Spinosaurus sneak up on these characters? Exactly. When when you when you've got such a, a key component scene from the first film, which is all about building up the tension, this was a cheap shit shot. You know, he's behind you kind of thing. It was just mm. it just made no. I, I'm a, I'm big on continuity, and I'm big on 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 paying off what you set up. And that was an that for me is an example in one sequence of what Jurassic Park three is. It's, yeah. it's, it's a cheap cash in nonsense with no with, with, with no weight behind it, with no with no guts. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people think that you know, what are these films at the end of the day? They're just um, big, exciting action adventure films. I, I don't agree with that. And as we've discussed, you know, there's a hell of a lot more certainly to the original film. It, yeah, it's just a poor film, and you know, like I say, for me, I, I think it's worthy of nothing more than a four out of ten. I think there's, you, know, you could argue that's being generous. Yeah, I, I'm gonna. I, I was wondering, do I do five? But no, it's a four. It's a four all day long. Hayden, I'll have to agree with you. As I've um, I covered my opinion on it, and you guys have have covered everything. I think the aviary scene for me is its only redeeming quality, and it's not enough. Um, it's a good idea, not executed nearly as well as it could have been. So yeah, it's it's a four for me. Okay, moving on now. We'll fast forward 14 years on from Jurassic Park 3, 2015, Jurassic World. Rich, I'll start with you. Right. We've got a long history over this film. Well, yeah, just to 
give uh, our listeners a bit of context. You know, as, as you said before, we always discuss film privately on, a, on an often daily basis. And um, Neil, Rich and I usually agree on most things. I can't think of a film that's probably <laughs> pushed us more towards fisticuffs, certainly at the time of the film's release, than Jurassic World. Myself and Jim Cartle, uh, we were on one side of the fence, and then firmly on the other side of the fence, making rude gestures and calling us nasty names, was Neil and Rich. <laughs> so Rich, I'll let you carry on from there. Okay, so I came out of Jurassic World... Well, my, my, my thoughts going in, we had um, Chris Pratt, obviously Star-Lord from Guardians of the Galaxy. The, the, the scenes that you'd seen um, sort of in the trailers and everything like that, we were looking like we were going to be um, sort of in for a fun ride. But hesitant about the CG that appeared in the the initial trailer, thinking this is going to look very false. We're going to have, unfortunately, we're going to have that balance. We're not going to have that balance right between CGI and practical effects. This is something which is going to be very CGI heavy. So perhaps I'm not going to enjoy. But it's a Jurassic Park film, and you know, can they? Hopefully, they've uh, they've done a Rocky Five to Rocky Balboa, and they've uh, they've learnt from Jurassic Park Three. And I've got to say, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think where I've got issues, many of the issues with Jurassic Park Three was that that it didn't feel like it it, it did, it didn't feel like it was needed. It felt like a cash-in. And, and this served as a reboot for me for the franchise, whereby you're picking up the series sort of over a decade later. Um, they made no bones about the fact that this wasn't going to be a direct sequel to The Lost World or Jurassic Park 3. If anything, it was more of a sequel to Jurassic Park without ignoring any of the uh, things that were pulled up in uh, The Lost World and Jurassic Park 3. So we've got to look at this thing. We've got dinosaurs on on these islands. We've we've got so what's going to happen to them? You've got the the world aware that that dinosaurs now exist, following what happened in in San Diego, and quite rightly, I think, in this modern world, you would have people who would come in and decide, well, no, John Hammond had the had the right idea. It was just executed wrongly. There's a better way of doing it. So the very fact that Jurassic World would then exist, I think, absolutely, it would exist. And for anyone who's ever been to any of the Florida theme parks. The, the first flight that we have through Jurassic World uh, and the, the, the various different enclosures and pens and things that we see, that is exactly how I would imagine Jurassic World to be. So, again, we say about the, the children in it being sort of quite irritating. Granted, yes, they are. But you, you, they're, on the, they're, they're on the monorail, much like the monorail that goes through Walt Disney World. And they're seeing the different the, the, the different pens, the different the, the, the different exhibitions, what have you, that they've got on there. With John Williams's with the Jurassic Park theme, I believe I, I don't think it was scored by John Williams or Jurassic World, does it? Um, but you've got the, the Jurassic Park theme. It was the, um, oh, Jurassic World was composed by Michael Giacchino, who right. did um, he did I think Star Trek Beyond, and I think he also did Doctor Strange. He's, right. he's been kicking out yeah yeah he's been kicking out a decent amount of um, of scores recently. Some of them like Doctor Strange, really good. What Jurassic World had to do was was reintroduce the brand to a new generation, whilst also appeasing fans of the original film. I'm not going to for one second suggest that we're talking of the legacy of Star Wars, but I felt that Jurassic World had a, a similar job to The Force Awakens. Um, it had to reinvent this this potential um, marketing behemoth and produce a decent film, unlike Jurassic Park 3. So you bring on Chris Pratt, you bring in an entirely new cast that nobody returns from the original film. The only thing that that, that is back is the, the T-Rex, because we believe that it's the same T-Rex from, from the first films. And you do have that open-mouthed feeling, you know, the, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up with the music playing as you're flying through the park. So that set me on a good path. Granted, it's a bit cheesy, it's a bit, um, it doesn't have the, the gravitas of Jurassic Park, but I think that actually what it's doing is it is asking those questions again. It is, 
it, it, it's brought that tale into the 21st century. It is, it, it's the closest to a remake without it being a remake because it still exists within the same continuity. And again, the characters aren't as strong as the characters in, in Jurassic Park. But as a leading cast, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, they are as close to Alan Grant and, and Laura Dern's characters as we've seen in any other film, I would say. Discounting and Malcolm. So, as a leading pair, you 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 accept their stories. The use of of, of, of Chris Pratt's character as the uh, as having trained the Raptors. I don't feel that anything that goes on within the film is beyond the realms of belief. If you believe that this world exists, whilst I've only seen it once since when I first saw it, it was it was the preferred sequel for me. I felt that it was a better sequel than The Lost World. Having rewatched The Lost World, I don't necessarily think that now. It's a film that is fun. It's probably aimed more at a younger audience than perhaps Jurassic Park was originally, or maybe that's just because I'm now 25 years older. But I find that it's got a lot to do and it does a lot right. It's not perfect. It's not Jurassic Park. It's 100% better than Jurassic Park 3. And when it's on TV, I've caught bits of it. I can sit and watch it and I can enjoy it. Okay, then. <laughs> I'll give something of a shit sandwich. And I'll start off with the layer of bread. The layer of bread is... This is probably, for me, you know, the, the third best in the series. We'll come to Jurassic Park 4 and Kingdom shortly. Thankfully, I rewatched Jurassic Park 3 last night, which has put the film, or put Jurassic World in a, in a bit of a better position in, in as far as, you know, how I feel about the film. Part of my issue at the time was some of the stuff in it is just, I think, is a little bit unnecessary and certain elements are a little bit, well, frankly, ridiculous. And they're all to do with the writing and the plot. I've got no main issues with the cast apart from the two brothers who I just think are really annoying. And did they really need to be in the film other than to have other people to put in peril? I didn't think so. You know, I I thought Bryce Dallas, Dallas Howard's character, she's like, you know, to have her as your sort of female lead when you look back and you've got two great characters in the form of Sarah Harding and Laura Dern's Ellie Sattler in, in the first film, who are just great and, you know, as much as they're not invincible, they've really both got their shit together. And then you've got her running away from uh, a dinosaur in six-inch heels. And she's just, you know, she's far too irritating in the film. You know, Chris Pratt, you know, he puts in a serviceable performance. You know, there are elements of Star-Lord, although, you know, far more restrained. He, plays, know, he plays Chris Pratt. He plays Chris Pratt, he and, does. and Chris Pratt is far more preferable to Vince Vaughn. Mm, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, he is. Okay. But then there's things like you've got the Indominus Rex, this dinosaur that seems to have all of these abilities because they've, you know, he is like an amalgamation of all sorts of different species mixed together in like some sort of genetic mixing pot. You know, he's got powers of invisibility or, or camouflage. He can talk to the raptors. I think he's got some sort of, um, he, he can evade thermal imaging. Is there a version of the script where they sort of didn't cut back so much and he's got the ability to fly and shoot lasers from his eyes? I'm sorry, but you say, yeah. If you're going to believe that dinosaurs can be, re, you know, can be you know, recreated through you know genetic manipulation, then you, you know you've got to sort of set the bar of, of your expectations a little bit lower. But set within the confines of what the previous films established, this fucking dinosaur could just do anything to service the plot. But do you honestly think this is where our debate where we are before? Do you honestly think that 25 years or 30 years later, whatever the time frame is from the time they started developing this technology, once once the scientists have mastered recreating the dinosaurs that did exist, do you honestly think that they wouldn't then try and perfect upon them yes, and that. utilize DNA from other sort of lizards and reptiles and everything like that to, in order to? To create that next big, it, it is. Yeah, site. I do, I do. But I just think they pushed pushed the credibility of it all a little bit too far. Maybe I'm being picky. You know, the film was a massive success, but then 
you know, how many times was that people going to see the film a second time? It was made on a budget of 150 million for such a big effects heavy film. That's about, you know, par for the course these days. And it's made over 1.6 billion. It's made a massive amount of money. But putting the feelers out there to, you know, and certainly there's a few people I know who liked the film when it first came out who have now looked at it and thought maybe it isn't that good. It doesn't hold up as well. And I wonder, are we going to be talking about Jurassic World 25 years after its release with the same reverence as we are for the first film? And again, just to close that shit sandwich, it's far from being you know, the worst <laughs> film in the series. It is, you know, it's a decent enough film. You know, I don't like the idea of breeding raptors to use in, in, in combat, in warfare. That's absolutely ridiculous. Why would you ever do that? One of the most lethal, uncontrollable species on the planet. You know, yet, and and they also seem to have been dumbed down. The fact that they, you know, the blue becomes, all right, granted, he's reared him from, from a baby. And again, you know, I can hear how picky I'm actually sounding when I'm saying that. But these are all the things that, at the time I thought, I, I just wish they'd gone down another route. But, you know, like I say, it, it's far from being an awful film. My it, my question to you would be, and it was at the time, if they're going to make they're going to make another Jurassic Park film, yeah, and we what we don't want to do is is necessarily bigger is better, beat the last yeah. one. So that, I think that they they are actually quite limited in what they can do in order to make a story that you want to go and see because they've already made a story that you don't mm. want to see and it was shit. So you'd much rather they didn't bother making a further Jurassic Park film, but unfortunately they make a ton of money. And again, we're twenty five years later, we've got. You know, dinosaurs are as popular as ever they were. It's one of those things that that it was always going to happen. I don't think you should award. Um, I don't think I don't think you should award points to a film for trying or because they had a hard job to do and things like that too much. But I do think that you can't overstate the job that this this film had to do. It hasn't done it. It hasn't done it brilliantly. Um, and it, and my score has definitely fallen away. Uh, uh, sort of in retrospect and I would like to rewatch it now from start to finish as opposed to catching bits and pieces but I do think that it could have been again I'm going to say it now it could have been a lot worse my view is that for what it had to do for this day and age when we're talking about the fact that there's so many things now that what's left to see what is left to put on the screen that we haven't seen doing a film about doing a Jurassic Park film in this day and age is a far harder task potentially than what it was all those years ago because we're so dumbed to everything because we've seen everything Rich, I'll agree. I'll concede that you've put a far better defence for the film forward than my attack of it. And, you know, I think, you know, a lot of mine is just personal nitpicks about some of the plot illogicalities. You know, it's got a few really great scenes. It introduces the Mosasaurus, which was a real, you know, mm. sea-dwelling dinosaur that, and really used to good effect. Yeah. You know, that scene where we saw the Brachiosaurus slaughtered by the Indominus Rex is a really moving and well-done scene that yeah. sort of harks back to, you know, the, you know, the, the, the scenes of, like, you know, awe from the first one, but obviously done in reverse where we're actually feeling really sad. There's just a few characters who are a little bit annoying. I think the kids are completely surplus to requirements. Um, it's far better than Jurassic Park 3. Far better. And and it's not a film now that I would you know be against sitting down with my two sons and, and watching. I, I'd happily put it on. Whereas if they wanted to put Jurassic Park 3 on, I'd probably go off and, and maybe you know go mow the lawn or something. Hayden, what's, what's your views on Jurassic World? In the first Jurassic Park movie, Ian Malcolm says, you were too preoccupied with whether you could, you didn't stop to think whether you should. And if Jurassic World had taken that line of dialogue and projected it as an overall theme onto a new film where they completely disregarded the fact that this has gone wrong many times and have still gone and done it, then it could have been a genuinely compelling film. Unfortunately, I think that it feels like it was made in a boardroom. It was 
it feels like it was made to revive an old and popular franchise. It has pointless characters. Chris Pratt is charismatic and Bryce Dallas Howard is good. They they do good work. The two the two brothers, I enjoyed a couple of their conversations. I liked seeing that relationship sort of solidify, but then it just petered out into absolutely nothing and didn't feel like the time we invested as an audience was worth it. The military subplot, yeah, you could argue that maybe, as you were saying, Rich, that maybe that's something that would come about if this were something that existed in the real world. Maybe that is something that would actually happen. But again, it just felt so unnecessary and kind of poorly handled. Yes, it's a it's quite a polished movie in parts. I do think that it captures some of the magic again in certain scenes, um, such as the big reveal of the park when I forget the, the the youngest brother's name, but when he opens the doors and it reveals a fully functioning park. That's really cool to see that. And it, it is on a very base level. It's fun to see Jurassic Park finally functioning as this fully fledged thing. Um, the way Hammond had envisioned. As as a film, it just it doesn't feel worthwhile. I've seen the film three times. These were my feelings the first time. I absolutely hated it. I wouldn't say that I've warmed on it since. I've seen it the, the next two times. I don't outright hate it, but I do feel that it, it just drops the ball in so many ways and feels very much like an attempt to bring something popular back into the mainstream without a whole lot of care put into how they wanted to bring it back. Well, Hayden, I was all ready to sort of have this well-thought-out sort of kind of attack on the film, but I think you've summed it up far better than I could there. You know, I think, you know, we've offered, like, kind of a, a decently weighted argument both for and against this film here. So before we move on to the fifth and final film at the moment uh, in the series, well, what are we giving uh, Jurassic World out of ten, guys? I'm going to go for a seven. Hayden? Uh, five for me. Well, I'll fall in the middle ground then, and I'll give it a grinding my teeth six out of ten. <laughs> and that's only because then it sort of balances things out a little, and because I do want to distance it a little bit from that four out of ten I gave Jurassic Park 3, which I think is a far inferior film to Jurassic World. So, fast forward then to, well, three years later, a few months back. This episode probably would have been a lot better timed if we'd um, released it back in the summer with Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Unfortunately, we weren't able to um, record anything in July because of various reasons that we did cover um, in our um, August episodes. But, guys, what are our thoughts on Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom? Um, Hayden, do you want to go first? Yeah, so I did a review for the site when the Blu-ray came out, and in that I sort of I talked about how how middle of the road this film is um i think i might we might find that i like it a little bit more than you guys do we'll see i think that it at least tries to break the mold a little bit in that it does feel a little gothic at times in its second half there there is some some really beautiful imagery throughout the entire film i think j.a bayona's direction is excellent and i think that is its selling point i think that visually it's worth a watch plot wise it's hit and miss characters don't really feel like they have come anywhere since the first Jurassic World film. If anything, the relationship between uh, Pratt and Dallas Howard's characters is pretty much note for note the same. They dated and then they stopped dating and now they're sort of brought back together through circumstance. I think that they they needed to do more with that. It's hard to address the, the entire mansion sequence because it put it on paper and it's ridiculous. And I think I'm probably going to end up 
continually going back to the fact that I think that visually the film really did it for me. I think that it, it just looked incredible. I loved the rooftop climax purely from a, a visual standpoint but without that direction and without a pretty solid soundtrack by i think it's uh Giacchino again i think it would it would rank much lower than it does in my mind and i do did address in my review that i think that it's a dying franchise if it's not dead already it's not dying in terms of the box office obviously the, this this series is going to continue on because it keeps making money but creatively, it's it, it feels very dry, and this film felt like it only exists to get us from point A to point B. I think that's something along the lines of what Colin Trevorrow even said in an interview. So that that's not a great sentiment to no. to take into it. It's difficult to know what the point of the film is, um, really, or where where they are taking the franchise. I think with Jurassic World, there was there was such an element of nostalgia in it as well, and I think. Perhaps it was it was that feeling of you know I love going to Florida and going to the parks and everything like that. So I, I got a lot of sort of joy out of that sort of element to it. When I looked at the Fall, uh, Fallen Kingdom, I've only seen it once. Saw it in the cinema. Um, I think I read your review before I saw the film. We're borrowing stuff from the Lost World. We got to sort of you know under the guise of rescuing the dinosaurs from the planet. I think that everything that takes place on the island was very good. I enjoyed that more than the rest of the film. I thought that the action sequences of them escaping the island and the island, uh, the, the volcano erupting and everything like that, I thought that was very, very good. The problem is, it, it's where do you go from there? You know, when, when we talk about Jurassic, as it's now known, Jurassic World, are we talking about the park being called Jurassic World or are we talking about the planet Earth becoming Jurassic World? I th- obviously, I think that's the way where they're going with the hints that other companies <clears throat> are employing the same technology to to recreate animals and cloning and what have you. Um, and we're certainly going down, it seems to be with the, with the cloning of... Um, of the granddaughter we seem to be going down that route of of cloning not just about dinosaurs about sort of humans and and anyone and everyone but i just found from from the moment the film started really you know all of a sudden john hammond had a business partner that has never been referenced before he's just as rich had just as much sort of involvement in the process he's never been mentioned it felt very very convenient just to have the sort of the crusty old rich bloke there because obviously we can't have John Hammond and that just felt very very convenient that didn't feel organic at all as I say the action within on the island was well executed and and well done albeit very CGI with 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 sort of the the lava and the explosions and everything like that I bought that and and the sequences in the water I I bought that as well I just found that once we got off the island and once we were then in the in the mansion my interest really started to fade uh, and I realised that the element of fun seems to have gone out of the film. I, I really, I didn't care. I, I you know, I, I guessed that, that the granddaughter was going to be a clone of the daughter. I just thought it, it just didn't hold my interest, and I came out feeling completely underwhelmed. And 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 thinking to myself, well, I don't. It's not that I wonder what they're going to do next. I don't care what they do next. Jurassic World was was a little trip down memory lane, modernised, brought up to date. After that, I don't think that Jurassic World is is a good ending to the franchise. Like, because obviously it leaves the, the characters, um, the doors open for the characters of what they're going to do next and what's going to happen with the island next. But I don't like what they've then done with the franchise after that. So for me, Jurassic World is the end point, if not the Lost World is the end point. I, th- I think I'm, I'm probably more with you there, Rich. I think they've actually written themselves into a corner with this film. Obviously after you know Jurassic World made huge amounts of money and you know Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom it's made over 1.3 billion we haven't seen the end of the Jurassic Park franchise for better or worse it is going to continue it's a film of two halves Um, you know again you are treading over old ground with going back doing this rescue mission of the dinosaurs because all of a sudden you know the you know the the island is 
mm. volcanically active. Was that established in the first film no. in Jurassic World? I'm not sure. So, you know, they've got to go back, rescue all these dinosaurs, and, you know, they, 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 there's some very decent action. There's that really touching scene of the Brachiosaur on the on the jetty. Yeah. As, uh, you know, as it's getting engulfed by all the, yeah, um, yeah. you know, smoke and dust and just guess, poof. Definitely had uh, uh, one of those chili chopping moments. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, watching <laughs> that. You move on to the mansion, and just for me, it sort of it dips into Resident Evil territory. It's a haunted house. Yeah. It's, it's, it's dinosaurs replacing zombies running around, you know, a, a big mansion. And then you've got the the auction of the dinosaurs. Is I it? I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. At, at this point now, in this sort of alternate, you know, universe where dinosaurs are something which man has recreated, it's not like you can just go down to a Costco and buy a Brachiosaur or a Triceratops. <laughs> These things are literally, you know, you're at this auction, you know, you're bidding on the the only, you know, surviving animal, you know, be it like, you know, when they, they bid on the Ankylosaur, and they, they're paying a few million for it. Yeah. A few million. No, well, they, they got that wrong, didn't they? Surely, you know, all things being equal, you'd be paying billions to own a dinosaur, and, and for what that would be worth to, you know, being able to experiment on it to you know to to god knows what it just there were a few things in there that just made absolutely no sense whatsoever and like rich by the time we got to the mansion section i was just losing interest and again i, I don't even want to give it that much more time uh, I, I think it's an inferior film to jurassic world apart from the two characters from jurassic world you know claire deering and, and, and owen grady i thought that franklin webb and, and zia rodriguez you know the, you know the the other the other two like sort of scientists were really irritating and again You've got John Hammond having this silent business partner that we don't know anything about until now. And then you've got the human cloning element as well, which, you know, that was the film's sort of big twist. None of it's very interesting by now. I I think we've seen all that I think the series has to offer. And, and, you know, the the few things we hadn't seen, I think Jurassic World gave us. And I think that's about it now. I think purely from a a point of view of a a fan of uh, two of the previous films in the series, and, you know, I I can appreciate Jurassic World for a lot of what it, it tries to do and some of the things it gets right. I think this film is a failure. I, I've seen it in in pieces since, since you know my my two boys have watched it since it's, it's come out on Blu-ray. But I don't think I'm going to be returning you know to it in in a rush. As far as scores go, um, sitting nicely between my scores for Jurassic Park three and, and Jurassic World, I think I'll give this at best a five out of ten. Better than Jurassic Park three. Oh, much better than Jurassic Park 3, simply because it's got a few scenes I actually think, yeah, you know, that was really well done, and characters that, mm. you know, I don't outright dislike. Yeah, this is where I've been sat now, sort of debating mentally, for just the island sequence alone, for that, as you say, and, and you reminded me of the of the sort of the end of the island sequence with the Brachiosaur on the, on the pier, up to that point of the film, it's better than Jurassic Park 3, so I'd, I'd stick it down as a 5. I've got no desire to watch it again. I've seen it once, and, and that's enough for me. Hayden, do you want to round things up with a score for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom? Yeah, I mean, if you put Jurassic World and Fallen Kingdom in front of me and told me to pick one to watch, as opposed to you guys, I would probably pick Fallen Kingdom. I think that it's less formulaic for me. The elements in it are less frustrating than they are in Jurassic World. So they're not great reasons to prefer one movie or another over another. Um, so for me, it's a five and a half. Okay. So there you have it, guys and girls. That is our uh, in-depth rundown of 25 years of uh, the Jurassic Park films. And I think it comes as no surprise as, you know, we hold the very first film, you know, in a, in a lofty position as, as one of our favourite films of all time.
So moving on, this week's chosen topic, usually we do favourite threes, sometimes favourite fives, but I just think it was too difficult to cut it down to anything less than... We're going to go for our 10 favourite film scores. Now, obviously film music is something that is purely objective. You know, there are scores that do stand head and shoulders above others. Usually what we would do is, one of us would start with a number five, then someone else's number five, then, and, and go around like that. But that's going to confuse things too much, I think. So what we're going to do is we'll start with one of us and they'll just run through their list of their favourite 10 and then some honourable mentions and we'll just go each of us doing that. So, Rich, do you want to start? Yeah, number 10, Magnificent Seven. Oh, Elmer Bernstein, good choice. I mean, you know, the, the film which, which obviously... Uh, it was the remake of The Seven Samurai. Yeah, remake yeah, yeah. of, of, of The Seven it's, Samurai. I mean... I, I don't know the Western genre really, really well. I love The Magnificent Seven, the first two films, I think. You know, it's, it's a great... The, the score is just... It's classic, sort of Western. It just, it just puts you... The minute you hear the music, it's one of those ones that just works so well. And obviously, the more sort of quieter moments and what have you, it, it I can't, there's not much I can say about it. I think it's, 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 it's rousing and it's uplifting. And as soon as you mention the film, I can immediately hear the score in my head. Yeah, it's, it, it is. It just puts you straight in there. It's, yeah. it's, it's a great score. Number nine is Gladiator, Hans Zimmer. It's it's stirring. It's it's there's so many. I mean, it was a very popular soundtrack album at the time. I think it was one of the highest sort of uh, rated soundtrack albums at the time. It, it's I'm not the massive Gladiator fan. Um, I don't dislike the film by any stretch, but um, certainly one of the I wasn't. 
I wasn't a huge fan of it at the time. It, I didn't jump on that bandwagon, but I just find the the score to be very, very moving and uh, and complements the film very, very well. Number eight, Dances with Wolves. Oh wow! Um, I, I I love that film. Mm. I, I love that film, and and again, you so much about that film is it is perfection. Um, and 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 the score again. You know the frontier. The the is so the minute you hear it again, it's one of those ones that you you just you're there. You're there on the plains. You're you're great rousing, rousing, but also melancholy as well. It it works so well in in conveying the mood of of, of the different emotions of the character the longer he's there. Number seven uh, is E. T. Yes. How how do I not put John Williams in at a position one two three four five six all the way through? It's very very difficult. And to pick your favorite John Williams, well. You know, you've got to oust something else. But E.T., and someone's chopping onions when I'm watching that film, they're, they're, throughout the film, it, it, it gets me every time. It's, it's fantastic, such a such a, an iconic soundtrack, as John Williams does. Number six, bit left field here for, 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 for what we think, is the Braveheart score, uh, mm-hmm. James Horner. The minute you hear the early bars of the music, you, you know, you're there in the in the fields of Scotland. It's It's just... It's, it's a great, great, and the, the Braveheart theme, I think it was sampled by uh, a dance uh, a dance DJ sort of in the early 2000s. It's a lovely, it's romantic, it's really emotional, it's a really powerful bit of, bit of simple, but it's, it's a really sort of feeling uh, bit of music. Number five, Back to the Future. What a surprise, Back to the Future has to figure in there. Um, <laughs> and and when I'm talking about the entire trilogy, Alan Silvestri's score, it's, it's so orchestral for something which is such a, it's such a sort of sci-fi comedy sort of premise. Mm-hmm. It's a very orchestral... It's a romantic yeah. score for a film that you wouldn't think yeah. is automatically going to get you. Yeah. you. You think they would probably use more like diegetic music and use more songs as opposed to yeah. the actual score. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you know, the, uh, counterbalance it with the power of love, that sort of yeah. 80s power Mr. Ballad. Sandman, when yeah, he yeah. goes back to 1955. Yeah. yeah, and and the, the reuse of it then it's used sparingly in the first film, and there's an expanded upon then for the opening sequence of Back to the Future Two for the title sequence, and then the Western version of it then for Back to the Future Three. Mm. It's it's a it's a great great score, uh, particularly the main theme. Uh, number four, Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. um, Howard Shaw again. Of course, <laughs> wow, it's just beautiful, isn't it? There's a test of a, a, a of a good score either immediately puts you in mind of whatever the key sequences of the films are but this 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 is this works on its own you know it, it's it's just beautiful it's menacing it's scary it's it's just so you were saying before about the different types of music that can that can curdle your stomach yeah. the sequences particularly with the urukai that it's so it's gut-wrenching it's yeah. really sort of it turns you it, it's so powerful it's so well done my number three was a late edition and it's Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. When I was figuring where uh, where in my top ten Jurassic Park would go, it didn't initially figure. It was because I was thinking I've got to leave John Williams out because there's so many of them could be John Williams. And then in doing the research for the film and the sequences that I was watching, it it is just a beautiful, beautiful score. And that scene we described before with the Brachiosaurus, it is just spine tingling and, and the hairs on the back of your neck. It's just unbelievable. Number two is Superman. Mm-hmm. Again. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. It's been said many times before, um, and I'm, and I'm going to quote Richard Donner as opposed to anyone else who's quoted him before, but for music that speaks the name of the character without actually saying any words, the main Superman theme, again, it's spine-tingling, it it's builds up to a beautiful crescendo. It is so iconic. Um, a lot of people complained when Man of Steel was coming out that they weren't going to use the, the John Williams theme, and I, it, it didn't bother me because it's, it's the Christopher Reeve Superman theme for me. But actually, having seen the gentle use of the Superman theme within Justice League, it's one of the only positives of the Justice League that I can think of. I think that that 
it's just it's just fantastic and it is it's a perfect even even the negativities which you would take from the score for me would be the Lex Luthor and, and, and Otis villain comedy kind of theme and the slightly cheesy Lois theme the, the main thing and the Krypton theme really really sort of wins it over and then finally it's got to be the Star Wars theme again I'm going to treat the whole trilogy because we don't re- we don't have the, the Imperial March in, in, in A New Hope the test for me is of all the shit that's been chucked at Star Wars over the last couple of years, all the all the the wave that we've been on as Star Wars fans, um, I felt like I was tired of Star Wars. I've had enough now. I, I can leave Star Wars alone. And my last trip to the cinema, I was in the bathroom, leaving the bathroom, and the main Star Wars theme came on. And again, the hairs on the back of my neck. When you look at the original, the original trilogy, it, it is if there's a more iconic body of work for a film, Leia's love theme, the, the, the main theme, then the Imperial March, it is it is absolutely perfect. And John Williams brings what is probably, in my view, the only positive to the original of the prequel trilogy, being Duel of the Fates. Hmm. It's iconic and it's it's perfection. It is. Hayden, do you want to go next, mate? Okay, so and I've got a couple of the same picks as Richie here, but I'll start off with Blade Runner twenty forty nine. You can't say any more about Vangelis' score for the original, and I've picked twenty forty nine purely because, and I think I've made it clear to the film eighty nine crew that, that this film itself is a big one for me. It's one of my favorite films already. It was an incredible experience to see in the cinema, and I share the same sentiment with the soundtrack. I've listened to it over and over. I just I find that it's transportative, and I think that's a hallmark of any good soundtrack it's a soundtrack that's eerie and takes me to that world every time i hear it and i feel like that's probably something i could say for every every soundtrack i've got here and my number nine is um alien jerry goldsmith it's creepy and it's foreboding it's another one of those soundtracks that you might not necessarily listen to when you're not watching the film so it's it's a it's a little bit of a different relationship that i have with that one as opposed to maybe some of the other picks i've got here but even you know when uh jed kurzel sort of opened his alien covenant soundtrack with that classic sort of opening from alien it took me back to to that experience it it created that tension immediately and i think that that's something really crucial especially to a film like alien which is the the music is used sparingly in that film but it's so effective um and number eight a bit more of a modern film and my next two are um but mad max fury road and that's done by junkie xl and i find that that soundtrack is just complete mayhem compared to to my previous pick it is bombastic and unrelenting and it's such a blast to listen to and it's something again that i've revisited and it it really helps drive the action of that film itself um so my number seven is uh la la land actually which still surprises me to this day how much I fell in love with that soundtrack and that film. I'm not opposed to musicals like I know, um, Sky, you you said that it sort of came out of nowhere, um, that you loved that film as much as you did. I did, um, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to because I just, as a rule, don't like modern musicals. But yeah, absolutely loved the film. Uh, and yeah, the, you know, the score and the soundtrack. Whereas for me, I didn't have any opinion of musicals. I don't have a lot of history with them. So to watch that and to enjoy as much as I did and to have really fallen head over heels for the soundtrack was a real shock. But that's a movie that I will I will go back to again and again. And that, one of the main reasons for that is because of because of the music. Um, so my number six is Spirited Away by uh, I think it's Joe Hisaishi. Yeah, Joe Hisaishi, um, yeah. 
and that is pure magic in my book. It's it, it really it's whimsical and it, it takes you back to this childlike sense of unknowing and and discovery and I guess its main theme is its draw and it, it's not necessarily repetitive throughout the film, but it's it, it's just perfect for what that film is trying to do. Um, so my number five is John Carpenter's Hel- Halloween. Again, it's sort of one that's most known for its main theme, and I did find that when I watched the film, that main theme is used very, very frequently. But it doesn't matter because it's it's so good. It's, it's chilling, um, even, and it, it, it sort of gets the hairs on the back of your neck standing up. And you sort of, no matter how many times you've seen the film, you might start, once that soundtrack starts playing up, you're you're anticipating the horror that's to come. And that film still holds up. And of course, the soundtrack still holds up as well. And it's John Carpenter's work as a whole has been very influential on a lot of modern synth soundtracks, uh, such as, you know, It Follows. There's a clear influence in films like It Follows uh, or you know, uh, Netflix's Stranger Things. So I think that John Carpenter has sort of made a made an indelible mark, and Halloween's the one that stands out for me from him. Um, next on my list is uh, the Godfather trilogy. Again, it, it it evokes a mood. It it takes you to to that environment, and it's and it it doesn't make you think about you know the the violence. It makes you think about the culture that those films so expertly pull you into, and and the soundtrack by uh, Nina Rota. It's it's iconic. You hear it as is true of I guess a lot of the picks that any of us have got on our lists. You hear it and you know where it's from. It's very distinctive. My third one, and I won't need to elaborate because, Rich, you've already gone there, is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. My number two, again, same as you, Richie, is Jurassic Park. I wanted to pick just the one John Williams soundtrack only because we could fill a whole list with him and we'd be justified for doing so. So I wanted to pick that one soundtrack that stood out and it's the one from the film of Spielberg's that I that, that I think is that stands out above the others, but my number one is uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Uh-huh. That good is good choice. Pure cinematic bliss. It is just unforgettable. Again, Lawrence of Arabia is a film I came to quite late again because that love of film came quite late. But that soundtrack elevates the film. It, it elevates a film that doesn't need to be elevated, and that is sort of the biggest of compliments or the greatest of compliments that you can probably give to a soundtrack, I think. Or yours, Sky? Well, yeah, there's there's going to be a bit of overlap between our choices there, but my, and again, I've got to say this list, you could take five films out of this list and easily swap out with some of my honourable mentions because there's so many to to choose from. Say, for example, my number 10, E.T. John Williams. You know, you could swap that out with yep. the likes of Superman and, you know, the list would be just as strong. The thing with the E.T. score is it just, you know, it's so moving. And, and by the end, when it reaches that crescendo as, as the ship is flying away, you know, if you haven't got a tear in your eye, then you're just, you know... You're dead. You're dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> My number nine is one of the ones you picked, Hayden. John Carpenter's Halloween. Yeah. I, I, I've been, um, you know, I've listened to it a few times recently on Spotify. So I probably brought about by the fact that, you know, I, I went to see the, you know, the new Halloween film really enjoyed that and then rewatch Carpenter's original it's quite minimalist it's one of those film scores that if you were to take it out of the film the film is just not going to work as well he, he takes a horror premise and puts it in like you know a leafy suburb mm-hmm. of, of, of this place of Haddonfield Illinois and a lot of the stuff 
where the score is most effective is in scenes of broad daylight yeah. of Laurie Strode and her friends mm-hmm. you know walking around uh, you know the neighbourhood and there's just this this guy the shape who's following him and so much of why that film works is, is down to Carpenter's score you know Carpenter is known for his, his um, synthesizer scores and, and you know doing a lot of the music for his films himself for me personally uh, his score for Halloween is is, is his best work there's not that much variation in, in the amount of sort of themes he uses but you know the effectiveness of the music is, is just second to none um, I'm not going to labour too much on my number uh, eight, which is Jurassic Park. Um, you know, we've already discussed how much you know that adds to the film and like the you know the sense of wonder that Spielberg is trying to convey. My number seven is a film that I've often said is probably one of my favourite scores of all time. And it, but it, it it's just it's only when I've sort of looked at some of the other ones further down the list I thought, well, do I prefer that more? And it's, it's so difficult to separate any of these. But that's Dennis McCarthy's theme for Star Trek Generations. Um, I think next year it's going to be the 25th anniversary of that film and certainly Neil and I and, and maybe um, a guest uh, from outside who's a big Star Trek fan are going to be doing an episode you know, on that film. It's a score that I think works perfectly in tandem with you know, the visuals on screen. It's a beautiful looking film. It was shot by John Alonso who was, one of the, you know, he was the guy that shot Chinatown for God's sake. So it's just a stunning looking film. And I think you know, Dennis McCarthy who's done a lot of work on Star Trek has, has put in a beautiful score that is like really just sort of melancholy and like rousing at the same time. It's just one of my favourites and it's probably the movie score I've listened to more than any other. Number six is Brad Fidel's score for Terminator 2. Now again, you know, if you're doing the film scores I've listened to the most, Terminator 2 is going to be up there. You know, it takes the themes that he set out in the original film, which was quite, you know, a bit of a low-key score that was more heavy on like synthesizers. Yeah, very synthesizer. Yeah, but then for the sequel, as much as James Cameron's film was like bigger, bolder, more money thrown at the screen. You know, I think the score matches that as well. It's just a phenomenal score. You've got, a, you know, like the T1000s theme. You know, like the simplicity of, of Jaws and the shark theme. It's just that low thrumming sort of vibration. Just an amazing score. My number five, and again, these are all completely interchangeable. There's nothing to say this couldn't be at the number one spot, is John Williams' theme for Jaws. When I, when, when I you know, suggested to the guys we do a list of ten, I was adamant I was going to just pick one John Williams theme. But then when you look at them all in isolation, <laughs> yeah. I've just not been able to. You know, I've already picked two in E.T. and Jurassic Park. And, you know, my third one is Jaws. You know, how can you not put Jaws in, on a list of greatest film scores? You know, aside from just the, the you know, the, the shark theme, even the quieter sort of, you know, the little ones, like the, the one where Brody's having that sort of father-son moment around the table yeah. where his little son is mimicking him. And, like, the music that, that's played alongside that is just beautiful. Richie's picked the Back to the Future trilogy. I've sort of narrowed it down to one, and I've picked my favourite score out of the three, which is Back to the Future 2. You know, it's got its own themes which are sort of unique to that film, which sort of Alan Silvestri doesn't tend to reuse throughout the trilogy. But then it's also got, you know, loads of the stuff that we're familiar with from the first film. Alan Silvestri is one of my favourite composers. You know, a few of his other films have made it to my honourable mentions list, but of, of all of his scores, I think it was a toss-up between which one made this list. It was down to this and Predator, and this one has sort of just edged it out. Mm-hmm. Like Rich said, perfectly, you wouldn't expect a film to have such a like a romantic or orchestral score when it's like sort of a you know a zany sort of time travel sci-fi comedy, but it, it just works perfectly with it. Um, you know, my top three I think are pretty more locked in, and at number three I've got Van Gaal's score for Blade Runner. It's unlike yep. any other film score I've ever heard. And as much as you know, the Blade Runner twenty forty nine score does a perfect job of, of not mimicking it so much, but doing like sort of a modern version on it. For me, you just can't beat the original. It's just otherworldly. And you know, when I'm listening to the score, I'm just thinking of you know, thinking back to the film. 
Number two, this would have taken the top spot, but I've knocked it down a point because I'm actually cheating. I'm picking a trilogy. I'm going to go for The Lord of the Rings, Howard Shaw. You know, if Star Trek Generations is the one I've listened to most, then, oh, I don't know, do you know, actually, I may have listened to The Lord of the Rings score more than this. Um, I've got the expanded versions. They're, they're like three or four CD sets for each film, which basically you've got every little bit of music that Howard Shaw made for the films. We're going to do a Lord of the Rings episode one day. And I'll go into a little bit more depth as to why I think this is one of the greatest film scores. You know, when, you, when you're making an epic adaptation like this, you've got to have music to match. And you know, you've mentioned films like Lawrence of Arabia with how romantic and rousing and just atmospheric they are. Lawrence of Arabia hasn't made my list simply because I love the score, but it's not one I've listened to like away from the film as much as these. So when I've kind of made this list, I've actually thought, which soundtrack have I listened to in isolation on its own? more than any other and if it's a score that I've listened to on its own like on my phone or on my iPod then that's sort of given it a little bit more leverage to go onto this list but yeah you know any other day of the week I'd put this in number one but when I thought of an individual film score that if you put a gun to my head and said Sky what do you think the greatest film score ever is number one I put John Williams' score and it's another John Williams I'm afraid but his score for Empire Strikes Back it's absolute perfection it's one I know inside out I can you know, even like the you know the hoth scene the way that opens up and you know the way it sort of you know the little musical beats that match what you're seeing on screen yeah it's just phenomenal you know and then you're introducing things like the imperial march like yoda's theme it's the one out of the three i've listened to most there are little cues from the other two films that i also really love like the you know, i think it's the battle of endor um which on the soundtracks john williams split into three and it's the one when they're actually um you know approaching the death star that is just possibly my favorite piece of music in all of star wars but taken into isolation as, as one film and one score i think the empire strikes back is certainly the best of his of his star wars uh, scores so yeah that's my top 10 rich you've got any honorable mentions you'd like to fly through yeah well I mean, once you've covered jaws name a name a, a john williams one raiders of the lost ark fantastic got to mention it flash gordon yeah yeah you know for, we'll, come, we'll come to that shortly with with, with without a hint of um, of uh, messing about at all me being a big Queen fan that I am, you know, you, you, you've got Queen with a rock sound, rock synthesizer sound, covering every single possible um, interpretation of any sort of music within that film. The score is completely Queen, and arguably it's the best thing about the whole film. Mm. <laughs> I, I love Flash Gordon, so yeah. <laughs> Batman 1989, Danny Elfman. Again, the film may have not have aged well, but actually the Batman theme that he created. It is there, very good. It is very it good. Is very and again, good theme. I like the I like the reuse of it uh, in Justice League again. Yeah, one of the yes, I did. Things. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I can I can see I can see the new Batman with that theme. I think actually it uh, that it, it's due quite a bit of credit that that Danny Elfman theme there. Um, hey, Hayden, sorry, you're not. No, no, that's it. No. Hayden, what have you got for honorable mentions? Uh, some of the predictable ones, you know, Star Wars, um, Jaws, of course. I've got Vangelis's Blade Runner soundtrack here. I love the soundtrack for her. I know that you're a big fan of the film, oh, yeah. Sky. Yeah, um, really am. Yep. Uh, this, the soundtrack for Gravity I particularly like. That's from um, Stephen Price. Mm. Um, also got Fight Club by the oh, Dust Brothers. Oh, yeah, the Brothers. Dust Brothers. That was, that was nearly going to make my honourable mentions. What an yep. awesome awesome soundtrack and well, score. But it, it sounded like any other. It really is yep. just in, in a class of its own. I can't, I, I can't compare the, 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 the music to Fight Club to anything else I've seen. No, not at all. And another David Fincher one, The Social Network. Again, I found that that's <clears throat> very evocative of that film itself. I've also got um, Interstellar, which you'll probably hate. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, Han, Han, Hans Zimmer just sitting on his keyboard, just making one constant droning note. Yeah, not my favourite. <laughs> 
And lastly, fittingly, The Dark Knight as well. I've yeah, listened to that yeah. innumerable amounts of times. Same here. Um, I'm going to try and be as quick as I can. I've got a film that nearly made my top 10 list and you know any other day probably will is Bernard Herrmann's score for Taxi Driver um, yep. it's my favourite musical opening to any film I just think is incredible um, and then his score for North by Northwest which I think is probably the best of all uh, all the, the, the scores to the various Hitchcock films um, I've got Maurice Jarre's theme for Lawrence of Arabia. The only reason I didn't make the list is because I've not listened to it in isolation anywhere near as much as I probably should have. Moving on to Hans Zimmer, a composer who I think does good work and then he does some equally bad work. But two of his best are The Thin Red Line and Inception. Hands down, two of the most incredible film scores I've ever heard. So credit to the guy there. They very nearly made my list. And then just it's basically cleaning up the rest of the John Williams stuff I haven't mentioned. Superman, Close Encounters, Star Wars, Return of the Jedi and the Indiana Jones trilogy. And i got to say, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull has got a perfectly fine score as well. But, you know, I like to tend to associate good film scores to good films, so I haven't put that one on my list. Um, And you've got Alan Silvestri. Predator was in my top ten. It was ousted by E.T., but a phenomenal score that, again, any other day could even be in my top five. I also love his score for Contact, which I just think is an incredibly atmospheric score. Um, you've got Miklos Rosa, his score for 1959's Ben-Hur is just magnificent and one I've recently re-listened to. Um, Elmer Bernstein, as Richie mentioned, The Magnificent Seven, but then I couldn't also mention that without mentioning The Great Escape. Mm-hmm. As soon as he mentioned The Magnificent Seven, the other one I automatically think of is Jerome Moross's score for The Big Country, which is equally romantic and rousing. And then you've got Basil Polidurus, who, again, these two very much nearly made my top ten. Robocop will come as no surprise to anyone. I just think it's an amazing score that I've discussed at length previously, so I'm not going to go over all ground here. And his score for Conan the Barbarian is just absolutely fascinating. Just an amazing score I've listened to countless times. Um, you've got Barry DeVorzon's music for The Warriors, which I also love. Really disappointed myself that Jerry Goldsmith didn't make uh, my list, but his scores for Alien. And again, Total Recall is an incredible score I've listened to countless times. And I also love his score for The Burbs. You talk about a, you know, a zany sort of suburban comedy, you know, like Back to the Future's got elements of. The Burbs very much is a film like that, with, but also like with a really, really nice orchestral score. And then you've got the sort of funky vibes of Lalo Schifrin with Dirty Harry and Enter the Dragon. Um, Thomas Newman's score for The Shawshank Redemption, Thomas I just Newman. think is absolutely beautiful. There's an amazing film called Baraka, which is just basically a video montage of some of the most incredible images I've ever seen. It's not a sort of pretentious arthouse film like some people might think it is. It is a work of art in and of itself, and Michael Stern's music for that film is some of the most incredible music I've ever heard. And to finish it off, uh, you've got John Barry's score for Dances with Wolves, which Richie's mentioned. And then uh, his pick of the various Bond films, his score for You Only Live Twice is just absolutely magnificent. So that one had to make my list as well. We put it out to social media and some of the friends of the podcast for their top five. Uh, I'll start with Bill Scurry, who was uh, here a couple of episodes ago discussing V. At number five, he's got Cliff Martinez's score for Drive. He's picked Vince DiCola's score for Transformers the movie. I know that's a film he's a big fan of. He's picked Goblin's score for Dawn of the Dead. Fabio Fritzi's score for The Beyond. And Toto's score for David Lynch's Dune. Uh, Jacob Rivera, who's a massive friend of the Film 89 crew. You can find him on Twitter, at JRATM23. He's picked Brad Fidel's original score for The Terminator, the 1984 film. Jack Nietzsche's score for Starman, which I've only re-listened to a few cues of that recently and forgot how good it is. He's a big fan of Hans Zimmer's score Interstellar, but I won't hold that against him. He's picked <laughs> he's picked for, Dan, for Danny Elfman, he's picked Edward Scissorhands, and Jerry Goldsmith's score for Rudy. 
His honourable mentions are Randy Newman, Awakenings, Clint Mansell for Requiem for a Dream, Danny Elfman for Batman, Hans Zimmer for The Thin Red Line, good choice Jacob, Thomas Newman's for Meet Joe Black, and then a couple more Hans Zimmer's, True Romance and Inception, James Horner's theme for Cocoon, and the score for Run Lola Run. Thomas Newman is, again, he does some outstanding He does, he really does. He does, and he just doesn't get the credit he deserves. Matthias van der Roost was on Twitter at Matt R says number five Conan the Barbarian number four Blade Runner number three Taxi Driver number two Shaft and at number one A Man and a Woman from 1966 can't say I'm familiar with that one but certainly agree with numbers five to two there. his honourable mentions are 35 Shots of Rum Amelie Firestarter a film called Electra from 1962 which I've never heard of and uh, awesome score year, Once Upon a Time in the West Absolutely amazing, Ennio Morricone. Stephen Simpson on Twitter at Steve007. Number five, John Carpenter's Halloween. Number four, Goblin Score for Dawn of the Dead. And then Goblin Score for Tenebre at number three. At number two, Blade Runner Van Gallis. And at number one, good old John Williams with his theme for Jaws. Cost on Twitter, that's K O S T. You can find him at Cost Mayer. He's picked Sicario by Johan Johansson. The Black Hole by John Barry, fantastic score. Tangerine Dreams. Electronic synth score for Thief, the Michael Mann film. Ennio Morricone score for The Untouchables. And James Horner score for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Then you've got um, the Film 89 crew. Neil Gaskin has picked number five. Bernard Herrmann score for North by Northwest. He says, attention-filled rollercoaster of intrigue. The score grabs you by the collar and drags you into the plot and the action. I'm glad I've inspired Neil to give a, a yeah. little reason for it. Yeah, I think he's criticised you for that in the past. Yeah, now he's doing exactly yeah. the same. <laughs> he's picked Vince DiCola and Bill Conti score for Rocky IV. Please, guys, check out the website. Neil's done an absolutely oh. amazing series of articles about the Rocky saga, which is going to be culminating in the latest one, which is going to be up hopefully later today or tomorrow. On yeah, Creed. outstanding. Just some of the best pieces of writing on on film I, I've seen in a long time. So for Rocky Four, he said the film is often lampooned by some, but tracks such as War and the amazing training montage by Decola are perfect examples of a rousing and uplifting tune. It's always on his iPod's gym playlist. Plus, you get No Easy Way Out and Hearts on Fire, so it's a no-brainer. <laughs> At number three, James Newton Howard's score for Unbreakable, a film that divides many opinions, but I also absolutely adore this score. He's picked. John Williams, Star Wars, for number two. Bound to be a popular choice, but that's for good reason. The scene of Luke staring at the binary sunset in A New Hope, featuring a full, deeper version of the Force theme, gives me goosebumps every time I watch it. And number one, Queen, Flash Gordon. Good boy. Firstly, he says it's Queen, so any arguments (laughs) against it are invalid. Number two, his point is the main Flash theme. fits the premise and tone of this camp, space, cult, sci-fi classic perfectly and is also beautifully tongue-in-cheek. And other tunes such as the Space Capsule theme and The Kiss by Roger Taylor are simply beautiful pieces that could fit easily in with the likes of Van Gallis' score for Blade Runner. And they're definitely a precursor to scores from films such as The Fifth Element. They even do a Queen version of The Wedding March. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do, which is awesome. Steve Amos, also with the Film 89 team, has picked number five, The Grandmaster by Shigeru Umebashi. Uh, Van Gallis' score for Ag- Alexander is number four. Ryuchi Sakamoto, David Byrne and Chong Su's uh, score for The Last Emperor at number three. Ennio Morricone's score for the for Cinema Paradiso is number two. And he's picked another Van Gallis one at number one, 1492 Conquest of Paradise. Not one I've heard. St- Steve's also got honourable mentions. Hans Zimmer for Gladiator. Van Gallis' Blade Runner score. Terminator 2, Bernard Herrmann's score for The Day the Earth Stood Still, 
and anything by John Williams. Steve's uh, friend then, Tony Sauer via Facebook, has said, as of this time in no particular order, James Horner's score for Aliens, Tangerine Dream's score for Thief, Lift of the Scaffold by Miles Davis, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade by John Williams, and Christopher Young's score for Jennifer Eight. And to finish things off, uh, the late, great Jim Cottle. He's picked at number five, Dances with Wolves. Number four, Hans Zimmer's score for Gladiator. Number three, well, in fact, his top three is all John Williams. Number three, Star Wars. Number two, Superman. Number one, Jaws. And his honourable mentions are Blade Runner, Chariots of Fire, and Star Trek. Uh, by Star Trek, he must mean Jerry Goldsmith's score for the original. He's not been specific, but I think he means the first one, there. Eh? So that's it, guys. We hope you've uh, enjoyed this deep dive into the Jurassic Park franchise. You know, I'm dry-mouthed and exhausted. It's been you know great fun discussing one of my favourite films with you guys and then also uh, just flying through top ten scores. Obviously, it's been great to have Hayden back on and, you know, Richie, it's been far too long since you've been back on. So hopefully um, we'll make these little uh, early morning sort of chats with Australia a regular thing. Well, it's nighttime there, isn't it? Yeah, it's nighttime there now, Hayden, isn't it? Yeah, it's about, about midnight. It's, wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for staying up so late, Hayden, or so early, uh, or it's just confusing me. It's a, it's a pleasure. So, Hayden, where can people reach you if they want to hit you up on social media for a chat? You can find me on Twitter at Hayden Spurrell, spellings H-A-Y-D-N. Everyone gets that wrong. Spurrell, S-P-U-R-R-E-L-L. Same name on Facebook as well. Otherwise, you can find all my work on film89.co.uk. Fantastic. And Richie? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Richard underscore Roberts or via the Film 89 page. And obviously you can uh, reach me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies and you can find us all at film89.co.uk. We've been kicking this stuff out lately. We've got new writers on board in the form of Jacob Rivera, who's done a few great little pieces to starting off. And like I say, Neil's uh, series of pieces on the Rocky saga are just just absolutely essential reading for anyone with even a slight interest in the Rocky films. You can find us all on Twitter and Facebook at Film89UK. Once again, thank you everyone for your loyalty, for your kind words, for your recommendations to friends. And please keep those all-important iTunes reviews coming. They do mean a hell of a lot to us. Not sure uh, what uh, is next in the pipeline. Oh, well, we've got a few ideas, but we're not sure in which order they're going to be recording. Hopefully, Richie are going to be back on uh, very soon talking about the 40th anniversary a certain superhero yeah Batman is it no 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 yeah uh, <laughs> that's hopefully one we've got pending for early next month and we've hopefully got Jacob Rivera who's big part of the wrong real crew he might be coming on for two episodes if things go to plan so guys uh, thanks very much for listening and as we say stay safe everyone stay happy but most importantly stay classy <laughs>